<laughs> when you're ready to come in. Live from the. Are you taking notes in your book? Yes. Mind your business. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's on top. Wow. How did you do that? That's on her phone. It's okay. Everybody. Okay. Yeah. The new look of the preschool is being brought to us by Emile Palmier. And, uh, well, We'll see how it works, <laughs> but it seems it seems good so far. But um, welcome to everybody, and uh, want to welcome Dash. She's from Brooklyn, maybe, and she's visiting <laughs> us today. Uh, but um, we have a lot to do as usual. But first, uh, I want to talk just a little bit and get people's opinions or think about. Uh, some of our plans for next year. And I've been talking to Emily, I think to Serafina and to uh, Nuri and Jeremiah. Uh, so I'd just like to, you know, suggest uh, three events that we've been talking about. One, the uh, North Korea uh, event, which is very, very important now with uh, all that's going on and the U.S. nuclear provocations on the Korean Peninsula, uh, which had been brought to a halt pretty much with uh, the Trump administration and Trump himself, by the way. Uh, so I don't know um, whether that would be in January or March. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll tell you why those two months, because we're talking yeah. about Oh, go, go ahead, Jerry. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> because we're talking about um, Du Bois's birthday, February 23rd, and we're uh, talking, I was talking to uh, Emily about this, a, uh, a conference, a one-day conference on Black Reconstruction, mm -hmm. which could coincide with what everybody's talking about, doing more reading or rereading Black Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So we could talk about how that conference could be organized. Uh, and the other thing is because Black Reconstruction is such a hot topic today, for better or worse. You know, when I say for better or worse, you know, uh, the put down of the work. And of course, in our, the way we do it, we elevate the work as a very, uh, substantial and fundamental work. So maybe an all-day conference on Black Reconstruction. Uh, his birthday is February 23rd, which I think is a Wednesday or something like that. So we would do it Saturday, of course. Um, the other thing is uh, an inter-civilizational con concert celebrating the 125th birthday of Paul Robeson. Wow. Which you know, which wouldn't be that hard for us to organize because you know of all the people that participated in the other intercivilizational concert. But 
you know, not having to do it along with a conference, it would make it um, a lot easier. So his birthday is April 9th. Uh, and I think that is a Saturday, you know. So those are those are the events which that I that I'd like to put before us as we go into this next year. And uh, but let me add um, Nuri and Jeremiah on the we're supposed to get together to talk about it. But what what are you guys thinking? Yeah, I mean. Part of it is we're still, I think we were, you know, coming out of the 10th anniversary conference. And so it's kind of like getting back into <laughs> thinking about North Korea. Yeah. Um, but I think part of it is like, I think Anna is all like part of the discussions as yes, well. Yes. But, um, oh, Anna, yes, yeah, Anna, Anna, yeah. Um, but part of it is building on some of the just the relationships first of all that we have been building with like the 10th anniversary and then also the Korea Vietnam event that was held um earlier this year mm -hmm. um and so like situating it within Philadelphia in the context of like trying to build on those relationships but my sense of it just from talking about it with you a few weeks months ago and then mm -hmm. oh is in a time of war and war provocations and mm -hmm. war mongering, like the American people, I think are, we, I think we feel like the American people are in a place where they can re-examine, I think countries like North Korea, which have been so like, probably the most demonized, um, over the past several decades, and obviously China is also demonized, but I think North Korea is a unique country in that it's it's like demonized to the point of you know ridicule. Of, mm -hmm. um, you kind of are able to dismiss it just through, um, at least in the West. And yeah, I think if the American people are to make any movement towards reconstituting this nation as a nation focused on peace then I think that has to involve, yeah, a, a re-examination of countries like North Korea, which are, you know, positioned as threats to the United States and which are, um, yeah, positioned as enemies to the United States and everything that America supposedly stands for. Um, and I think along with that, yeah, I think just what North Korea has achieved, especially how it's been able to withstand decades of sanctions um, and sort of isolation and like sabotage by the United States, I think is not. And also like, yeah, like endless basically provocations and there's been different stages of like peace talks throughout the decades, but um, how have they been able to build and sustain a state and a people and to build up a people in the midst of that? Um, and what lessons does that hold for Americans as well, I think is worth considering. Cause yeah, I, I don't think anyone would disagree that on a very basic level, North Korea is a very unique country. <laughs> um, and so I think being able to examine that from a standpoint of like genuine 
like good face of engagement of curiosity even about like what what is this country um i don't know those are some initial yeah. thoughts yeah because i think we've been floating and talking about this idea of doing like the event for like basically throughout this year <laughs> but this year has also taken us like very far mm. i think in talking about the american people like the fourth american revolution and I think also throughout the year, like the war in Ukraine and just the amping up of US military tension generally, like with China and yeah, like now this stuff with North Korea, I think draws the question and the importance of like the war and peace thing so clearly. Like with the war in Ukraine, I feel like to an extent, like the American people were already unhappy. Like they already did not want this, but I feel like, by, I don't know, like sabotage or like sneaking around, like for whatever reason, like we're still funding and sending all this money. But I think if you're trying to, if the US is trying to open up more areas of conflict, like I just don't, like nobody wants this. And I think it's an important opportunity for, I think the American people to not just say, we don't want war, like we're just tired of war, but to actually want to make strides towards peace mm -hmm. like say that like we actually want peace and we don't just want peace as in like the absence of war mm -hmm. like we actually want to make strides towards a world where we're not like obligated or like dragged into these things anymore like mm -hmm. there's no point it doesn't serve us it doesn't serve anybody and i think also last week when we were talking about the multipolar world, but really democracy within or across nations, like a democratic world order. I think a lot of what I've been thinking about with North Korea is like, yes, the state itself, but also I think the possibilities of the state that would be unleashed in a different sort of world situation. And yeah, because in some ways, like a lot of the reason why Americans maybe have been taught to see North Korea a certain way is also because of these like decades and decades of war and of just like antagonism. And so I feel like part of what I think is what's needed is a re-examination of North Korea and of like many things, but fundamentally I think through like the lens of peace and like what peace would actually mean. Because I feel like it's been kind of a, I don't know, like not a tired word, but I do feel like the world peace movement that we've talked about and studied had a different energy and a different light than a lot of the peace activism that like you see today, which yeah. with like different NGOs, like all of those peace movements, I think are very tired and they're just like, oh, like just end the war, like do this negotiation, which is not wrong. But I feel like, yeah, the issue of peace has to be made more relevant mm -hmm. to the American people and show that it's yeah i guess like a part of the american revolution also of what we're fighting for and what's working yeah. and so yeah i think that's what i feel right now based off of how like world events have moved in the last year in the last few months and also where free school has mm -hmm. moved with the 10th anniversary yeah yeah and just to add on to what Larry's saying 
there's this image of North Korea that it is an anachronism, I like meaning that it is like basically a country that's frozen in time mm -hmm. as like a sort of Stalinist. Basically, it's like it's like within a, within like a sort of it's like an island of, that's frozen in time, surrounded by like modernity <laughs> and like you know sort of basically like liberal modernity and all that. <laughs> but. I was about ready to fall on the floor laughing. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. excuse me. I'm no, sorry, I mean, Jerry. Little... <laughs> but the, the interesting thing about it is <laughs> there's an opportunity to re-examine this question as actually does North Korea contain something of the future mm -hmm. of what the world will look like? <laughs> Not just in terms of like yeah. it's contained within itself, but also like the world order that Mary was talking mm -hmm. about. Because the interesting thing is it's like not to like pit, let's say like China versus North Korea, but they are pretty like they're different, they're very different in that China is like super large, you know, but North Korea is an example of very like very, very small country. And there's a lot of very small countries around the world. <laughs> and like what is going to be their their place in that they can sort of establish and that I'm like what did what role can they play in sort of reconstituting like the world order on a, on a democratic basis itself um and yeah <laughs> i think you and nuri have laid out the uh the framework for the conference already so it should be very easy <laughs> to do <laughs> so we just have to decide upon the time the date no i think so because i think before when we were talking like i think it was more about like, oh, like really like a deep study of the North Korean state. Yes. And then we're like, how are we going to do this? But I think the fundamental issue is like peace and yes. what, like actually thinking about it mm -hmm. um, in like a serious way. So yeah, I can. So would, would we think about the Asian Arts Initiative as the site maybe? Sure. <laughs> Let's try. Yeah, it's always yeah. negotiating. <laughs> Any any questions about the North Korea event? Um, so we'll we'll y'all decide when and where, but I think it's something we've been thinking about so long. The other thing is um, the um, anniversary of Du Bois's birth, and that um, a one day conference on Black Reconstruction. I don't know that we have to say a lot about that right now, since we, you know, we know what that would look like, but it would give us the opportunity to probe it more deeply from a theoretical, philosophical, and logical yeah. standpoint. This question of logic, I, you know, um, is very big for us, a work of logic and a work of theory. Um, but um, I guess we'll put together uh, a planning group. And so that's February. So we have time, you know, uh, probably the Church of, of the uh, Crucifixion mm -hmm. would be a, a good place for it. But uh, we'll pull something together in the next couple of weeks or so and get that moving. The other thing is the... Um, which I think would be even uh, maybe a bigger public event is Paul Robeson's 125th birthday. Um, this is, I think, 
just as important as um, clarifying who, what, uh, and everything about Du Bois is the same with Robeson. Uh, I have to say that um, Robeson, although there is a Paul Robeson House and Museum here, uh, there is, yeah, right. It, it does not educate the people about the full magnitude of Robeson. Now, we wouldn't be having a conference, but of course, you know, the way we put things together, there'd be a call to it, a statement of who Robeson was and why he is important. But I was thinking that it'd be an intercivilizational uh, concert, which fits so perfectly with Dubois, I mean, with Robeson as a uh, champion of human civilization and a multi-civilizational world, you know? Um, so I, I think I don't, we have to put, pull together a group that would begin planning it. So we still, we have a lot of time for that, but I think we should get on that. That'll be big, that'll be important, uh, et cetera. I don't know anybody, anything about the planning thus far? Hi. If not, um, if not, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead with um, the things that were, were planned for discussion. Uh, first of all, the election. Secondly, uh, saying a little bit more about uh, Nouriel Rubini's book, uh, Mega Threats and His View of the World System. I'll talk about that a little bit. And the threat, as he calls them, the threats, the mega threats to that. And then um, some discussion of the uh, fuel uh, around Kanye West and Kyrie. Uh, <laughs> What's <is> everybody laughing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> why are you laughing, Samir? <laughs> oh, it's a very interesting topic. Um, and um, so many questions. Why now? You know, who are the players in this? It's touchy, but it's important. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's um, start with the uh, elections. Uh, it's, you know, the free school is so uh, attuned to politics in this country that, um, you know, this uh, election as it is unfolding, I don't think it is a surprise to any of us. I mean, we've been discussing it for some time. Uh, but there are there is so much going on around this election. Let me let me just start with a kind of a story of my encounter or encounters with a group of people last night, one of whom is a relatively uh, famous, and I could inverted quotes, activists here in the city. Uh, one of those, and I, you know, I, I, I uh, talked to him about this, 
I try not to curse today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in kind of hard terms, you know, where you're an activist, but you don't know what's going on. And people who might help you to understand what's going on, you avoid consciously because of your uh, ideological predispositions, I'll put it that way. Uh, and so when you hit a crisis like this, you who are an activist and a somewhat of a leader, especially of younger people, uh, you have nothing to say. But I don't know, this is, you know, things are bad. And so I said to him after this kind of thing, I said, well, uh, do you have anything else to say? I mean, yes, things are bad. We know that. But what do you say to the people? He has nothing to say. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, I am very impatient, deeply impatient with this kind of uh, fake radicalism, BS activism. You're an activist when the ruling class and its agencies say that this act, that your activism is acceptable as in the Black Lives Matter movement. And you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, they just started pouring money, the foundations and the, uh, uh, the nonprofits just started pouring money into that in uh, 2020, 2019, no. It was almost immediately, and that goes back to 2015 and 2016. And there, there are articles after articles in the New York Times where huge foundations, Rockefeller, Ford, and others, were saying that we have to finance this. And then, of course, the promotion of it in the New York Times and other places, and um, the branding of it as the greatest civil rights movement in history. So, well, who gives the New York Times that authority, first of all, you know, who oppose the greatest civil rights leader in American history when he turned to peace? I mean, turned against him ruthlessly. So who were you and who gave you that authority? But it was clearly a identification of a quote political movement that they had a huge hand in directing and uh, promoting, and it was uh, about the 2020 election. And I think we cannot forget that because they failed to do the same thing this time around. <laughs> And we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, this idea that I'm an activist, I'm conscious, I'm woke, I'm this, that, and the other, but you cannot explain something very basic about what's going on. And the other thing that really um, made me uh, feel impatient with him, this is a grown man now, we're not talking about uh, an undergraduate or a recent graduate from college or high school. We're talking about a grown ass man. 
and I was so impatient. He knows nothing about the world situation and seems to be satisfied that he's ignorant of it. And I said to him, you cannot understand these upcoming elections without understanding how these elections fit into a world that is going through a profound transition. But knows nothing, <clears throat> indifferent to learning, um, and uh, so on. I was very impatient, to put it mildly. And this is a great crisis, and it is a great crisis for the Black community. And you claim to be, you know, every time you turn around, you're doing something at Malcolm X Par. Of course, you down with Malcolm X and Garvey, and not, you know, all of the all of those gestures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you, you see what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm a little upset with him and people like him of his generation, so much so that I said to him without, you know, in an unqualified way, your generation failed. You failed. You failed as an activist. You failed as a leader. You have not taken on one of the most poison and toxic ideological moves on our community that is gangster rap and hip hop. And it's not just entertainment. It is a propaganda ideological attack upon what Du Bois called the souls of Black folk. There is no two ways about it. There is nothing organic to the musical history of Black people. You don't go just organically from a love supreme and ooh baby baby and love's in need of love. Everything is love, you know, to this, I'm not gonna even use the language. Where did that come from? Who is responsible for it? And if the B word and the whole word and other words like that were used, were not used exclusively towards black women, would it, be, would it have been promoted? And I think the answer is very simple, no. So it is not organic. And just like, quote, Black Lives Matter, this, quote, music was promoted and engineered outside of the Black community. I want to come back to that because this explains what is going on with Kyrie and Kanye. Not in the way we would think about it but I understand the protest and the anxiousness and the sense of who is controlling us and why. Mm -hmm. And do we have anything to say about it? Mm -hmm. Or are we just high paid slaves? Mm -hmm. And that's what they're saying, you know, I know, I don't even have to know them, I know what, what's going on. But back to the election. So, you know, I was, I was very, you know, but I was set back, you know, um, you don't know, but you seem indifferent to knowing. But anyway, this election, and it is the most consequential midterm election in, well, as they say these days, memory, I don't know whose memory, 
most most elections you don't have a memory of because they didn't mean anything. But at least since the end of World War II, this is the most consequential because it is an election, the end of the day, that will, in a very strategic sense, challenge the neoliberal uh, imperialist hegemonic ruling class. And they know it. They know it. Um, if you know how to read the New York Times, uh, really the New York Times, which is a terrible newspaper. Uh, like I said, articles just too long, language just too narcissistic, you know, and everybody's writing, trying to write to get a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> or a job promotion. This is not the language of the people, but if you know how to read it, you see the angst of the ruling elite who they do represent. The Democratic Party unquestionably is the party of the ruling class, no two ways about it. It's the richest, wealthiest party. When I say richest, I mean made up of the richest and wealthiest people in history. They're all in the Democratic Party. They are all rooting for Biden and for the Democrats to win. You will know what side of the class line a person is on uh, in this respect by knowing who they support in this election. If you are, now I'm not saying every, people say, well, are you talking, well, I know this billionaire who is not with the Democratic Party. Yeah, Trump starting there. But when you look at the ruling class as a whole, and that is a complex, a set of institutions, individuals, and networks. You know what I'm saying? It's the Democratic Party. If you look at where the military is, the Democratic Party. I mean, every element of the ruling class is in one another way in the Democratic Party. Now, but you can't, as they say, run with the foxes and hunt with the hounds. Until I know if this makes sense to you Run with the foxes and hunt with the hounds. So you can't, you can't have it, you can't be a fox that the hounds are hunting down. At, and then, you know, you can't be both. <laughs> with the foxes and it's like a street kind of language. Um, the party, therefore, has abandoned its base, the voters that it has always relied upon. And that is no better exemplified than here in Philadelphia in the state of Pennsylvania. We're gonna see how that plays out. Um, but so 
the election objectively. Objectively, I don't, you know, a lot of people, you know, you see on television and maybe in the newspapers. Oh, we went to Butler, Pennsylvania and interviewed a white worker up there who says X, Y, and Z. And then we went to um, West Philadelphia and interviewed a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. And they said, yes, abortion rights is the main thing. You understand what I'm saying? But all, if 100% of the students and faculty at the University of Pennsylvania voted, let's say Democratic in the upcoming election, it could not offset the fact that Black people are not going to vote. And they're not going to vote because they know that locally, nationally, statewide, the Democratic Party, Black and White, have abandoned them. And they are angry. But this is the party of war. This is the party of inflation. By the way, inflation is and can be government policy. In other words, by devaluing the money, you also uh, make, you devalue, so to speak, the government debt. You see what I'm saying? Uh, if you got more dollars and the debt is let, let what it is, the government debt, the federal government debt is $32 trillion. Never unheard of in human fucking history. You see what I'm saying? So if there are more dollars and each dollar is worth less, so the debt might still be $32 trillion, but $32 trillion with high inflation is not what it was before high inflation. You see what I'm saying? So sometimes uh, inflation can be used can be used, I should say, as government policy in responding to huge government debt. I want to come back to that when we talk about Nuri Elodini. But it is the party of war, no two ways about it. The party of war, the party of inflation, and the party that has abandoned working people irregardless of their race. Now, this party on this coming Tuesday will be soundly punished by the voters. The most loyal constituency to the Democratic Party will punish them. And it's a beautiful thing because this represents, and this is, I know for myself, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a deeply humiliating thing to see black people used and misused by the Democratic Party establishment here in Philadelphia. I don't care black mayor, black head of city council, black this and black the other. 
high taxes on the working class, black folk losing their homes, gentrification, poorer than ever before, school system collapse, and you preening and prancing around talking about who among you gonna run for mayor and whether or not in the upcoming mayor we need black girl magic, please. That humil—I mean, it's humiliating, really, for black. These are the these are the people that gave us the great freedom movement, and use like this, you know. And then, well, as you know, Biden and Obama, Obama, the debutante. You know what I'm saying? They're gonna be here at uh, Temple University today. Get out the vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get out the uh, uh you know just you have to also look at the character of these people you know uh this is not a you know a cute show mm-hmm. you know ain't nobody interested in who's cute obama <laughs> maybe 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 some women are but shit as black men we ain't Come on, man. You know, so you think that you got charisma and, and they think that you're going that if you say to the black people vote, we're gonna vote. No, we ain't gonna vote. <laughs> now, this this is why the social political consciousness of black people. That's why I'm always saying. Where are black people? That's why I'm riding these buses and going, just always looking. What can I feel? How's, you know, how did the bus driver speak today? You know, did this, you know, do black people say hello to each other? These are very important because these are signs of our capacity. You know, if we are hostile to each other, which a lot of reasons for us to be, by the way, you know, that means our capacity is lowered. You know, if we are, well, hey, how you doing, brother? How you doing? Good to see you, smile. That's a that's a higher capacity, you know. And um, but even you know, even in the throes of this great anger about this violence, and we are angry you still see signs how you doing how you feel today thank you those are very important in the midst of a lot of unhappiness i'll get back to that but it's not just unhappiness with what's going on and i'm here singling out what is an existential threat to our social being. I'm talking about Black people's social being. This murder shit. And can't nobody do nothing. Can't nobody say nothing. And, you know, I'm talking about people that have the bully pulpit, that have power and authority to speak, to act, and they do nothing, say nothing, you know, when the DA speaks, oh, crime is going down. This is crime, oh, murders at a hit. Crime, but who the F are you? And we put your simple behind in there? 
So, <laughs> so you you can I, I just say this to get a sense of the existential reality of this people who the Democrats will rely upon to deliver for Fetterman, Shapiro, and the rest. And there was an article in the Enquirer this past week, Janice Armstrong, for me, not known for her great insight or writing ability for that matter, <laughs> but she picked up what we had been talking about. You, you saw it, Emily, did you? I think I got it from you. Yeah, you sent it to me, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. <laughs> Yeah, it says, go, go, go ahead, Anna. She was talking about, like, she was like talking about all the people she knows in the city, Black people, who were saying, like, we're more concerned with bullets than ballots. Like, what do you not get about that? Where people are like, why should I, like, be, take the time to vote when I'm worried every second of my life, whether I'm going to die from, like, um, you know, just from anything. Or my kids. My kids. And they said specifically, they're like, we, why should we vote when not a single candidate in this general election is talking about gun violence? That's what they say. And that's the thing, because when you hear the rhetoric or the platforms or messaging from, especially the Democratic candidates in the city, and like, it's always about, they are relying, even Fetterman, like statewide candidates like Fetterman or Shapiro, they're relying on a rhetoric about rights. Like, oh, we need, to, we need to make sure we have our democratic, we protect our democratic right, rights, democratic right to vote, democratic right to like have an abortion, democratic whatever, right to do this or that. But it's like basically what Janice Armstrong was saying was people are saying, what about my right to live? Like, what about my right to make sure my kid is safe? Like, what about that existential right? So what kind of democracy are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could extend that to the world situation. People are talking about this or that. It's like, what about like the very basic human right to live in peace? Like, like that's why like there's so much all those conversations of the UN. Like, there are all the conversations of the UN about nuclear weapons, but also Russia and China saying like we're not going to agree with the UN trying to like punish North Korea. Like, what about peaceful coexistence? Um, so, but yeah, I mean, you get that also. Like, I know people are canvassing and stuff, but. You get this from the workers, like you, you're getting this from the workers or ordinary people. Like, I mean, I have to talk to you, where it's people are not people are not concerned with anything other than like basically economics, like the economy and war. Mm -hmm. And like Parpa was telling a story this morning about like when she had to go to Lewisburg, which is like super, in my opinion, is super representative of a huge swath of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know if you want to talk. Well, it's this conversation I had with the person who was driving the bus. There weren't too many people, so it was just talking for the entire time. And, you know, first of all, two things that stood out to me was, you know, how much people are afraid to say what they really want when they, mm -hmm. can't, when they don't know whether they can trust the person they're talking to. But also once we really got talking, he basically said everything free school. He, he believes everything that the free school has been talking about this entire time that, you know, yes, abortion important to, for, for women to 
you know be able to decide what's right for them and all this is stupid what happened overturning Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. or whatever but this this election will be fought on the basis of the economy and on war um yeah so I think mm-hmm. it's just like reinforced for me that you know we've been talking about the right thing yes. right. and that's and, and that's what I wanted to say as we get closer to election day it is abundantly clear that this election is about war, about the economy, and for Black people, about gun violence and the feel, feeling of being unsafe. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats talked to none of that, mm-hmm. didn't want to talk to it, consciously attempted to keep all of this off the table, and in June decided that it was Trump, abortion rights and democracy. <laughs> it means nothing to the working class. But then on the way to the election, all kinds of things broke out. First of all, Tulsi Gabbard leaves the Democratic Party. Can't forget she ran for president in the Democratic primaries in 2020. So she's not an unknown. She leaves the Democratic Party and said it is the party of warmongers. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, you know, speak the truth, girlfriend. You know what I'm saying? Then uh 30 inverted commas, progressive <laughs> Democrats release a letter to Biden saying that yeah, keep funding the Ukrainian army, but so see a path to negotiations. And they were shut down, as they say in the street, with the quickness. And they went underground and stopped speaking with the quickness. So furious were the threats and, and so on against them. Um, and then of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Republicans. First of all, um, this Wall Street Journal, that was from uh, Danny, Wall Street Journal poll showing 48% of people who vote Republican are against funding of the Ukraine war. It's all over if US funding ends. And then Kevin McCarthy, uh, has come out, as uh, Emil points out, saying that there would be no blank check. And the way that he fra- framed it is very important. He said the government is in, has a $32 trillion debt, right? And how can we afford to fund the Ukrainians, uh, et cetera? all the sense in the world. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, and of course, you have to be a fascist if you're for defunding the war in, the, in, 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 in Ukraine. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm, you're fa- that's, that makes you a fascist out the gate. But obviously, the Republicans that are more aligned with working people, I'm not gonna say it's a working class party, but more aligned with working people than the Democrats 
are reflecting their constituents who are saying that we are doing bad economically, gas is inflated off the chain, and this can be traced to this war and the funding of this war in Ukraine, which if you look at the Democrats and the way they talk, will be an endless war. And that's the thing, a war that will never end if they are not, the Democratic Party is not defeated in this election. The election has become something completely different from what the Democratic strategists had planned. Oh, go, go ahead, Emily, you can say something. No. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, it is open. Because I was thinking like the point of democracy is to represent the interests of people. Yeah. And it's not just about the formal legal procedure or something. Mm -hmm. Because I read this morning John Thurman saying, oh, I'm hosting sedition-free Biden and Obama. Right, like wow, sedition, no. like you know, in other words, explain that. What did that mean? Meaning, he's referring to like Marjorie Taylor Greene because they protested. Was this vote legal or or the, the January sixth thing? Like they're still running on that, the Democrats, because you mentioned Trump, and they're saying we're protecting our democracy. That's what I understand Fetterman to be saying when he says this is why we need Democrats to protect. This is why all the campaign ads are going after anyone who like challenged the vote, the Republican candidate to run it. And the reason I, I bring that up is because that's how they're putting democracy as a very formal thing, as if you can you can over Zoom, you know, tally the votes if you want. It's not like it had to be at the House of Representatives, it doesn't really matter. But inflation and the war are obviously democratic issues. I mean, in, you were mentioning seniorage earlier, so how the government's going to pay for its debt by inflating away the money supply, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so who pays for that? It's working class people. I mean, they pay more for eggs and for milk, and that's a transfer of value to the debts to pay down. And the war, I just saw the Pentagon is going to be giving tanks to Ukraine, yeah. right? Like that just came out the other day. I have never voted on that in my life. Of course not. <laughs> I don't vote for giving tanks to Ukraine or something. It's the state, right? In other words, it's an undemocratic thing. And so of course the whole like discontent, actually it is a democratic discontent. And so there's something highly hypocritical and ironic about the democratic party running on defensive democracy yeah. where they're doing totally undemocratic things. Yeah. And calling people such as Marjorie Taylor Greene the Putin wing of the Republican Party. She might be the most democratic. Yeah, absolutely. In other words, you are allowed to say, actually, isn't it something very democratic to say, well, maybe this democratic procedure was not done correctly. She has the right to do that. It's the First Amendment. And she's representing the interests of her constituency. And, and then to say, to brand people who oppose funding for the war in Ukraine, as seditious. Yeah. Sedition is a federal crime. Well, it's not just a law, it is in the Constitation. Can you be hung? Pardon me? Can you be hung if you're well, that, yeah. treated? Yeah, that's that, they're literally saying you're the worst person. You are treating this, yeah. and and now the word fascist is thrown around. You know, anybody's a fascist who is not with the neoliberal program. 
Mm -hmm. um, hey, y'all, it's never been this bad. Mm -hmm. This is worse than the McCarthy era. Mm -hmm. This is a complete shutdown of freedom of speech, freedom of conscience. Uh, that's why Tulsi Gabbard is such a heroic move, you know? Uh, and uh, so, quote, uh, treasonous, because they are defining and labeling anything that challenges the program of neoliberalism and war as treason. I don't know during the time of the war in Vietnam that it was quite this bad. There were many establishment people who spoke out against the war in Vietnam. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, you know, you would get the, um, you know, certain Congress people and others saying that, oh, you're coming out against the war, so you're betraying our boys and our troops fighting in Vietnam. But I don't know that it was ever so widely said that this is sedition. I don't know. Uh, you know, there, there were, you know, there were young ultra leftists back then who had a slogan, ho, 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 chi Minh, the Vietnamese are gonna win and all like that, you know. Uh, okay, small group, uh, young people, yada, yada, yada. But the peace movement was never called a wing of the um, of Ho Chi Minh's Workers' Party in Vietnam. But now, the whole Republican Party, including Trump, by the way, I think when we talk about the Republican Party in this election, this is about Trump, because most of the candidates who will win were chosen by him to run. And they were chosen by him on the basis of their being, inverted quotes, election deniers, mm -hmm. or anyone that questions the election is uh, feeding into the big lie. So when the when was the last time you had the big lie? Goebbels in Nazi Germany. Oh, what's that? Uh, Goebbels is he was the propaganda minister in Nazi Germany. Uh, what was Goebbels' first name? Joseph. Joseph Goebbels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and so they said that. The, the, the Nazi state was based upon promoting the big lie. Mm -hmm. So now, and, and regularly, Trump and, and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others are defined as fascists. Mm -hmm. And the Trump wing, I mean, the, the, uh, the Putin wing of the Republican Party. But this is the good news. It's going to be a bloodbath for them on Tuesday, I predict. I don't see any way Fetterman will win in Pennsylvania. And a lot of things will conspire against him. Obviously, his debate performance where he showed that he is in bad shape. But I don't think it was just that. I think it is their strategy. 
of abortion and democracy in January 6th. And, and of course, in every statewide election in Pennsylvania, what is needed all the time is a huge black turnout. That's what it is in Philadelphia. Huge black turnout, the Democrats can win. Not so huge black turnout, they don't win. That's what happened in 2016 when Trump took Pennsylvania, you know? And that's what's going to happen this time. And that's why uh, Janice Armstrong's article is so revealing. But I think we already knew that. And it's not just, you know, like in the black community, of course, it is the de depression, the, the fear, the sadness, the anxiety, seeing this around us all the time. But it's also the more positive thing of saying, I'm not gonna vote for candidates in a party that does not recognize my suffering. It is, and, and you know, it's hard for me to have the words to tell you just how deep this is. The feeling of betrayal and having been used. That is huge. And um, so um, I'll just end on this. And of course there is objectivity and subjectivity objectively this election is about war and the economy and for black people about this violence more than just about crime this kind of murderous existentially threatening violence the democrats tried to make it about something else they failed The Trump movement within the Republican Party will exponentially increase its authority and power. Trump will be, if he is not now, and I think he already is, the unquestioned leader of what goes at the Republican Party. There is nobody that can challenge him. But after this, it, you know, McConnell and the others who, who claim some, uh, you know, idea of leadership. It's Trump all the way, which then means logically, if the logic continues, if this arc continues, that he will be, and he is going to announce that he's running in the next few days for the presidency, and chances are that he will win. And what his movement has said, and we will control the vote counting in the states, which is very important, which got at least very lax, if not totally corrupt in 2020. Uh, I'll stop there, maybe other people have things to say. Well, I wanted to add some context on like Pennsylvania too, because mm -hmm. Raju had sent me this New York Times article about, like, titled um, The Battle for Blue-Collar White Voters mm -hmm. Raging in Biden's Birthplace. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting was, like, because everything, like, we were describing about 
black folk in Philadelphia there it's interesting that I think in Pennsylvania it's like the same there's certain it's the same threads I think in all of Pennsylvania but especially like specifically white people without college degrees mm -hmm. and that's what this article is focusing on and like the article says like gives statistics that I thought were interesting um and I think important because it's everyone's focused on Pennsylvania like I can't tell yeah. if it's just, we're just biased because we're living in Pennsylvania but I actually think everyone's focused yeah. on Pennsylvania that's also why Biden and Obama are here yeah. like this is GOTV weekend mm -hmm. yeah. where you go on this weekend says everything and like I think Bernie's in Pittsburgh no, Bernie's coming here too I think uh Bernie's yeah he is he's yeah. coming here too yeah. but he's also he's in Pittsburgh but it's Pennsylvania. Yeah, Bernie's also in Pennsylvania. Yeah, also Trump was in Pennsylvania. Yes, yeah. Trump's been Pen Marjorie Taylor Greene was in Pennsylvania. Yeah, they everyone has come through Pennsylvania. And part of it is also not just because Pennsylvania is a battleground state, but because like Shapiro, who people hope will be governor, has plans to run for the presidency in 2028. Like they're making basically because there's a big like I think behind the scenes in the Democratic Party, there's a huge crisis of who will take leadership in the future, like which direction is the party going towards. Um, and like they're putting a lot of their eggs in the baskets of people like Josh Shapiro, who represent like a moderate Democrat like was attorney general is somewhat progressive but also like very moderate very traditional also he like he's going to be marketed as like the first jewish president that's what my even said um which they're marketing as like the first jewish governor of pennsylvania as well um which apparently it, it does appeal to a lot of religious voters they're hoping it appeals to religious voters in pennsylvania like i'm not completely convinced just on like conversations with membership but the statistics in the article said um says there are quite simply a lot of white voters without college degrees in America. A Pew study found that such voters accounted for 42% of all voters in the 2020 presidential election. Comment what percentage? 40% of all voters in the 2020 presidential presidential election were white voters without college degrees. And by some estimates, they could make up nearly half the vote in Pennsylvania this year. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is one study, another study from the Pew Research Center showed that as recently as 2007, white voters without a college degree were about evenly divided in their party affiliations. But by 2020, Republicans had opened up an advantage of 59% over Democrats, 35%. Wow. And yet yeah, that was to me said, because like, you have what you said about like the question is will black voters even come out like that's how they're going to um that's how they're going to like say we're not going with the flow like we're not going with the status quo we're not going to vote but then you have on the other hand um you have a lot of the huge majority of the votes in Pennsylvania are actually white voters without college degrees mm -hmm. like poor or working class white people um and like the article is interesting because people were saying, people were saying how like mate how they were kind of interested in Fetterman because they were a little swayed by the whole like Carhartt hoodie thing, gym shorts thing, which like I will admit, you know, I was also a little interested in it too. But but they said like these voters were like at the end of the day, we're not voting about, we're not voting on costumes, like we're not voting on performance either. Like, even if I like your outfit, like, we're going to vote on policy. It is going to be like, are you 
do we think you're going to improve inflation? What's your economic policy? Are you going to this and that? And it's interesting because my union's messaging point for our get out the vote is our argument is saying you should vote for Democrats because they will protect your union. But the big, the big Achilles heel they don't realize is your union is not necessarily guaranteed to a good livelihood anymore. Like your union is not guaranteed to like the right economic policy for you anymore. And so none of none of this matters to people completely anymore. It's war. And then the basic facts of is my government going to address things like inflation, going to address things um, like things of that sort that are going to affect me every day. Um, and yeah, I just I just wanted to paint the context, like the paint the picture of Pennsylvania too, because like this state, like both the Democratic Party and I think the Republican Party have their eyes on Pennsylvania as like also a place of the next lead, like the next generation of leadership. What do, what is this going to say for twenty twenty four? And it is a it is going to be a bloodbath. Like the polls, the traditional polls yeah. are saying it's like fifty one forty nine right now for Shapiro. Mastriano, that's really close. Really? Yeah, last I think last week it was 55, 45. 45 was Mastriano, 55 was Shapiro. Like I think just two days ago it was 51, 49, 49 Mastriano. Like the polls or the okay. Yeah, the polls. That's I mean, these are like and these, I mean, you take polls with a grain of salt, but I'm just yeah. saying, like, it does reflect something. Like it's a lot tighter than people, it's a lot tighter than people were hoping it would be. Mm -hmm. Um and obviously odds feminine is super tight it's always been tight yeah with odds like on the advantage but yeah the governorship i think is totally in question can i just say one thing this is very interesting so because it's easy for people to get it confused you know they will say to us for example well uh can you accept uh mastriano and oz being against a woman's right to choose, mm. you know, or um, some other question, but certainly that, or their connection to Trump, who is an, an anti-Democrat, you know, those people will say that. And I, I, my response always, a woman's right to choose is one of the priorities and has been for most of my political life, mm. you know, Roe v. Wade was a time of great celebration. The, the failure was, that the pro-Roe people, Roe v. Wade, did not uh, legalize it in federal law. And that's where you get this thing where everything is centered upon the Supreme Court. What about the role of legislators? But yes. my argument is to their claims that would probably be, you know, as I said just now, yes, all of that, but, the crisis is one of war and peace mm -hmm. and the living standards and quality of life of ordinary people. Mm -hmm. That's uppermost. And this election is being fought out on a national basis, pretty much the party of war versus the movement mm -hmm. that questions this war. And if they question this one, they will question, they have a basis to question the one in Taiwan and this military buildup, nuclear buildup around South and North and South Korea. Go ahead, go ahead, Yeah, I mean, I think this has been 
said before and you mentioned it with the Viet like the comparison with the Vietnam era but yeah like would you say it's accurate that you know what was called the silent majority at that time has transformed like the silent majority which was basically like kind of white middle class mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. was completely absent from the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and which supported in large part the war effort in Vietnam that that population has moved towards becoming like another kind of silent majority but one which is silently opposing the war agenda um in today this I mean, what you described is, in my estimate, in my experience, the qualitative shift mm -hmm. in US politics nationally and statewide. This is profound. A lot of times they will articulate it, that is, political scientists and commentators, as the center has collapsed. Yeah. You know, in a two-party kind of system, you know, the two parties fight it out, debate or so-called fight it out. And then after the election, whoever wins, they then come to a consensus and the, the, the nation is governed from, you know, what they call the center. Now, a lot of this is fiction, but even the center, which means the elite coming together, mm -hmm. You said that has collapsed. This country has not experienced anything like this since really since the Civil War. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Where uh, one is, you know, that's why they get all upset about Trump continuing to question the 2020 election. Mm because they're, what they're arguing is that you're throwing a monkey wrench into the way that our, quote, democracy operates, mm -hmm. the peaceful transfer of power. But what Trump is saying, well, why should I peacefully transfer power when the election was corrupted? Yeah. You know, the, the ironic thing is, um... Hillary Clinton has also been hitting the campaign trail. Oh, <laughs> but um, that means the Democrats are going. Yeah, they're <laughs> <laughs> she, like the, it's like the messaging that she's saying is that she's like, oh, the Republicans are going to try to steal the election. Yes. But isn't that literally, literally what you're basically accusing the Trump people of being fascist for, for mm -hmm. saying that, that saying that the, the Democrats stole the 2020 election. Yeah. And, you know, you have, whether it's like people like Clinton, also, you know, Stacey Abrams, who was kind of all of a sudden lifted to become this kind of celebrity who hadn't really ever done anything. But in her own elections, you know, she also had questioned the results. And so I think it's like, okay, either you think that, yeah, in some in some situations, like I think there is at least yeah, as, as Danny was saying, there should be like the the opportunity to question election yeah. results. But it has to go both ways. It has to go both ways, though. But I think the um the other you know fascinating thing about it is um I saw there's that like lady I don't know if she's on MSNBC but Joy Ann Reed yeah but she was like she had I saw this video clip on Twitter where she was like she's like you know inflation 
Like no one was even using the, no one even knew what the word inflation was <laughs> before the Republicans started using it. And it's like a highly technical term and like ordinary people have never heard of the word inflation until the Republicans. And basically she's saying that people, especially black people, working people are so stupid. They've never heard of the word inflation and it has to be something that was invented by the Republicans, you know, and it's just, just yeah, it's just like the level of propaganda is so insane but it just reflects the kind of desperation i think ultimately that the ruling class feels and i want to yeah also just read like affirm like the point that was made earlier about war being the central question to the actual substance of what democracy means mm -hmm. and you know du bois is the one i think for many of us who clarified that point about imperialism being the greatest opponent of democracy itself, because on the one hand, you know, I think it was Danny who, who brought it up earlier, that you have all of these policies which are made about wars that happen, but also like the whole machinery that goes into it. And the people in this country have no say in what and all that what happens, but also the people of the world have no say in what happens because of like this war agenda and this like essentially imperialism. And even you know, like the messaging, the messaging that comes out from the Democrats, you know, people like Biden saying, you know, he's like, actually, like America isn't the only country that has inflation. It's a worldwide problem. And actually we have lower inflation. Well, one, that's only because the, the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency. Yes. And it's designed to basically weaken the currencies of like the world. But also factually, all of the inflation problems worldwide are happening because of the Ukraine war and they're happening because of the supply chain issues. And all of that is tied to the Democrats war agenda. And it's not just the fact that, you know, there was like the whole qualitative easing and, and all that stuff, which happened earlier during the pandemic, you know, the flooding, pumping money into the whatever into the economy. But factually, just if you want to tackle inflation, the central question is the war in Ukraine and ending that war and making sure that like goods can actually get to again. Um, and so, and I think people are are like basically aware of that and they, they're, yeah, pe basically like people are not stupid yes. um, and they can see what's going on. Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say like, if the other thing that Perba had said that was interesting was the driver asked Perba, hey, what, what's your thought on what's happening in Iran? <laughs> that, that's the thing, there's this assumption from the ruling class like the, yes, that people, ordinary people are stupid yeah. or don't care what's going on. But, or distracted. Or yeah, or will easily be distracted, right. but they're not. They know, like that's the thing. They know that oh, there is a world situation and a domestic situation. And I just wanted to say like, domestically speaking, like I don't know about you guys, but I just feel constantly anxious and I can't even control it. And like, I was telling Doc about, it, I was like, I don't know why, cause I, I would have digestive issues, like many things. And I was like, why am I so stressed? Cause work isn't like that busy. It's just like, nothing's that busy. But I realized because there's, you can tell the tension in the city, yeah. like, especially around the election, it's so yeah. tense. And then like that recent, I just want to talk about like all the different, it almost feels like society is like, a teddy bear with like a seam open in its belly and at any moment it's like cotton belly is gonna erupt like pop out or something and like that article that just came out about like truancies in the Philadelphia schools yeah it was talking about how like um the Philadelphia 
number of students, the number of Philadelphia school district students who have at least 10 unexcused absences and basically the definition of truancy, like um, yeah, chronically chronic truancy mm -hmm. is at its all time high. It's like, so during when, when COVID-19 hit from 2019 to 2020, it was 24,000 kids were chronically truant. And then in 2020 to through 2021, it skyrocketed to 47,000 kids, but it's even higher this week, like this most recent school year. Yeah, 2021 to 2022 was 55.6 thousand students chronically truant. Uh, and like you have a huge educational crisis and basically crisis of the youth. And then also like there's the, like just, I know I talk about my union a lot, but to me it's like, it's also a sign of something where I've never heard so much from workers who are so candid, like just how pissed off they are at union leadership and also like the political, what they're calling the political game and how much people are trying to manipulate them into voting a certain mm -hmm. way and how much they're upset with what you termed as like quality of life. Like I've never heard them this explicit about how they're unhappy with union leadership. Like just like outright, like, and you know, just very candid and like it's coming from both black workers in Philly hospitals and like rural white nursing home workers, like everyone across the board's unhappy. And like, I'm also in charge of sending the political emails as well as other emails saying like, hey, like, Josh Shapiro is going to protect their union rights. Like, don't forget to vote on November 8th. And I also receive, I, like, I'm in charge of the inbox where I receive all the emails back. And it's just like, the, the stuff that comes back is so interesting. You know, some of it's very, like, chaotic. That's fine. But a lot of it's people saying, like, don't ever email me again. Like, I'm tired of people trying to get me to vote when I don't eat, I can't even pay my gas bills. Like it's people being like, I'm about to get evicted and you think that I care about Josh Shapiro, you know, stuff like that. People, like people are not okay. And it's, yeah, it's just like all this tension, like the crisis of unions, the crisis of labor, the crisis of youth and children, the truancy in the public school system, this is the public school system. And then, like you said, like city council, the only fight that's happening amongst themselves is who's going to be mayor. That's right. Like, it's like <laughs> the definition of like a pie in the sky. I don't know if that's a right euphemism. But yeah, it's like the definition of people who are stuck in the sky have no, have complete fear of even talking about gun violence. Like complete fear of just being transparent and saying like, how hard is it for Democrats to just be transparent and say like, listen, we have a crisis and we don't know how to completely address yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's like, they don't want to talk about it because unfortunately Larry Krasner is a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Like he's in all the, like the Republicans are smart. They know how to use this. Every single Adam Fetterman also has Larry Krasner's face on it now. Like I see it. Really? Yeah. They're saying, do you want to, are you going to vote for a candidate who has Larry Krasner on his side? Like, oh, like that's, those are the, those are all, like, all the Republican ads nowadays are talking about crime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Am I, do I think the Republicans know how to completely address crime? No, but at least they know that's the issue that yeah. people care about. Exactly. Like, that's the bare, like, bare minimum. And, yeah, I feel like I only really see, I guess, the ruling class Democratic side of things with my canvassing. But I think what you were saying about how Black people feel as though they've been used by yes. the Democratic Party and essentially it's a, completely. And it's a horrible feeling. Yeah, and that you're betrayed, like because it's like you actually for years you've turned out the vote for what, like for what democracy, like what is it all for? And 
yeah, the fact that the messaging or the issues are not even the issues that you care about, mm -hmm. but you're still expected to go out and loyally vote mm -hmm. for somebody you know doesn't give a shit about you, I feel like is, I don't know, just such a huge miscalculation. And yes. yeah, and the way that people talk about Philadelphia is that it's a guaranteed democratic victory. Uh, yeah. And that also really bothers me, <laughs> like the entitlement and the assumption that like, oh, we don't have to do anything. These people are all good. Like let's focus all of our energy and our resources on like the collar counties. <laughs> but the thing is, is that it's not even like the rural voters. It's actually the richer suburban mm. vote that like yesterday I was in Tredyfrin, which is like a pretty nice suburban neighborhood. Like it's very wealthy. Oh, Tredyfrin Township. It's like in Chester County. Oh, Tredyfrin. <laughs> to me. The other thing is that everybody I work with is also a recent like transplant to Philadelphia. Yeah. So no one knows yeah. city. Like organizing director. Tredyfrin. It's like Devin. All day, nobody corrected me. <laughs> Shows how much they know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, it mid well, Jeremy and I was talking about the silent majority, and the vast majority of America is like rural towns, like yeah. a full majority of the population lives. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, in Alexis, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, he talks about how the geography affects America with it mm -hmm. being, you know, these great mm -hmm. plains in between the two mountains. And um, yeah, people, uh, um, people like from the Midwest to the further out you leave the city, like they're, they're less likely to, you know, say things. People from the Midwest are more likely to just mind mind their own business yeah. and keep it to themselves. It doesn't mean they're not, you know, thinking about these yeah. things. But the, yeah, like the, those wealthy suburban neighborhoods are actually, I think, the only areas that have turned more democratic in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty interesting because it's all of the houses are like at least $600,000 or more. They're like very nice. It's very quiet and peaceful. Yeah. And it actually feels like the crisis. Yeah, like the crisis that people are actually facing, like whether it's in the cities or in the more rural areas in those like sheltered suburban pockets, I think people don't realize because they just don't go. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because actually that's the exact target of the democratic messaging mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, like abortion rights and democracy are the main issues. Like Trump and January 6th is the main issue. It's not the economy because people are comfortable enough. It's not gun violence because it's not something that they actually like consider a reality. And yeah, I think this thing of, the Democratic Party's actual constituents at this point are those people. It's not Black people. Mm -hmm. And even with the effort of like the group that I canvass for, they're trying to now recruit Asians to be like the Democrat, like the loyal party of the Democrats. It's one of the strangest. No, because they're the fastest growing like racial demographic in America. And so it's- but they don't even know where the Asians are. <laughs> like they have no idea. And also like all most of the leadership is white people who also one of the, some of the organizing team has moved to Philadelphia within like the last few months. Oh, so they literally moved, they literally moved here for the election, for the midterm election. Yes. And so it's also like, I'm, I realized yesterday, I was like, how can you be so gung-ho about shit talking Oz for having moved here for New Jersey? Like you don't, like you don't know anything. 
And yeah, I think it's also interesting that like what we had said before about the ruling class trying to reinscribe the color line, it's not about issues, it's about racial fear. Yeah. And that's the way that people are trying to get Asian people to also like go into the Democratic Party. Like when I was phone banking, most Korean people like do not really care about like January 6th and like Trump and stuff like that. They really care about inflation, <laughs> um, which makes sense. Like those are the issues affecting the American people. But I met like an, a really old Korean man who voted for the first time in 2020. And I think he has been hit by like the fear mongering essentially of like, oh, like Trump is like a horrible racist. Like he's, mm -hmm. he doesn't, he's so chaotic. Like he's incompetent. He's not fit to rule. Mm -hmm. And that moved him so much that he registered to vote in 2020, but he can't even speak English. So he had to get like a nonprofit person to come with him and accompany him to the yeah. polls to get his vote. And that's how much the nonprofit ruling class values those votes and is willing to pour in resources yes. to get every single one of those possible votes. But they, yeah, like they have no strategy, no intent, and no desire to actually win the working class. Nope. Like not at all. Instead, they'd rather like, yeah, just pour millions of dollars of money into like converting random ass people who don't actually, I think, have, I don't know an ideology or interest like it's all these isolated pockets mm -hmm. um, and yeah it's really shocking i think no i just wanted to add to that to what Nuri was saying was i do believe like you know all the people who have such condescension for ordinary mm -hmm. um american people how much they understand what they're capable of knowing and reacting to I find some of the most ignorant people are the college educated people that I have to hang out with. Because, you know, for instance, these statistics you were saying about Shapiro versus Mastriano or whatever. I had so many conversations this week in college, in university settings, both here and in Lewisburg, where people are just like, oh, Shapiro is just going to win. Mastriano is not even campaigning. He feels like, oh, you know, you don't have to do anything and people will just come and vote for you. This is so clear, clear. Delusion, just delusion, like no clue about what's going on. And on on the other hand, this person, this person who is like a working class American citizen, he's Republican, he was a Trump supporter. He knows what the issues are. He's like, okay, this administration is attacking, they first attacked Trump and now they're attacking all Trump supporters. So he understands that. Then he said, oh, the gas prices, you know, since Obama, this has been rising and now by it's going down if you go anywhere in Lewisburg you will see it's still close closer to five dollars than it is really? um to 4.5 or whatever whatever the thing that Biden yeah. was trying yeah. to sell yeah. so I mean if you compare this it's clear who are the people who actually you know know what's yeah. going on and who have that kind of clarity yeah but see at the same time on the other just like with uh, Emily's um experiences the labor leaders and their staffs okay. will suffer a tremendous defeat you know in a time like this i often think about henry nicholas mm -hmm. who tied his union mm -hmm. to the democratic party certainly locally and then with obama even nationally i i, I just think how would he negotiate or navigate this situation and i would i would just if he were not you know 
ill, I would love to have a conversation with him and with Lucian, Lucian Blackwell, because the Democratic Party that they thought they were promoting is not this Democratic Party. And I think, but yeah, I just wonder. And certainly with these union staffs who are even more important than the elected officials have more power in the union than even the elected officials in the union, these staff people um, who are this university educated woke crowd. And I agree with you, Purva. I think universities are centers of propaganda and socialization and all kinds of uh, social distortions yeah. that they want to use as distractions from the class issues. So I, I think this I think this election is a rebellion of working people and lower middle class people, irrespective of race, mm -hmm. against yeah. a party that has abandoned them. Yeah, and, and mm -hmm. one of the ways people talk about this is, oh, let's go out and vote because we have to save democracy. Yeah. And when the outcome is what we yeah. think it will be, which is inevitable, they'll be like, oh, this is such a defeat of democracy. Right. Like, I mean, you know, I feel yeah. sorry because if you just, yeah. You have to attempt to understand what's happening. It's bigger than you, but anyway. Yes, no, it's, it's, but you know, the thing, it, it makes no sense because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it's stupid. How could they have made such a blunder? That is a democratic strategist. With all of their polling, with all of their money, with all of their, quote, political experience, they made a huge blunder and they're going to pay dearly for it. And their mistake or their blunder makes and opens opportunities for the people and for people like us. Because, you know, um, it, you know, I, I, can I just give another story if you don't mind? Um, I did an interview with Margaret Kimberly for Black Agenda Radio. And um, she is more like a social democrat. And I don't know that she would characterize herself that way, but I see her that way. For instance, she would say uh, Biden made all of these promises that he did not live up to, you know, and therefore uh, people are, you know, skeptical of him, something, she'd make that kind of statement. And, and I would reply, but they never intended to live up to them because the agenda was not to reform society and create a better condition for the masses to live under. It was to use that in order to quiet the people so that they could carry out the war agenda. I said, this, the crisis of the world system that they dominate is the first priority. So to say that he didn't live, what makes you think they ever wanted to live up to it? You know, I mean, so 
you get people who will argue that way, which is at least naivete, a naive position about what the ruling class is all about. But it's this thing of, well, the Democrats need, they don't live up to what they say. Well, when have they? And how can you have a war agenda and a peace agenda, a, a, a domestic peace agenda at the same, they can't go together. So it's that type of, uh, of um, language and thinking among people who I guess you could say are the better part of the progressives. Um, and I'm just saying, you know, you need to, you know, I was saying to her, you know, you, you have to wake up. That argument, that language suggests that you believe that the Democratic Party and its leadership is something that it is not. It is a party of war. And then I quoted King, war is the enemy of the poor. But it's a whole missing, um, you know, things, it's too much missing in their understanding, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Now, can I just say one thing? What accounts for this deep loyalty of Black people to the Democratic Party? Three major events in American history. The New Deal, and if you get people of my mother's generation, they will all point to all of these programs, mm -hmm. the works programs, the, you know, all of these programs, social security. Prior to that, Black people voted more Republican because of Lincoln. But with the New Deal, uh, and certainly after World War II, there was a major shift to the Democratic Party. The second thing was Johnson and the civil rights legislation, okay? And the third thing was Obama. So, but, so you can see it's like, you know, I mean, it's almost um, something hard to overcome, you know? And in a situation of only two parties and lying and perpetration going on, well, this is what we do know. We do know that the Democrats stood for this and the other. <clears throat> the other thing is now for all of that to be eroding. My argument is that for Black people, and certainly for Black Philadelphians, it starts not with the National Party, although that's part of it, but with the local party. And, and Black Democrats, where we Black people assume that we were in power. First Black mayor, Wilson Good, and just oh, then the head of city council, and then the chief of police, and the head of the fire department. All of this symbology. But when it came to substance, poorer, less educated, uh, homes being taken away, taxed to death, then they're saying we cannot go with Blacks and Democrats. It's, it's, it's almost, you're talking about a bloodbath. 
I, you know, I just want to tell you, you know, so you'll know that this is, it's, yeah, the polls and the statistics say it in part, but the polls never accurately uh, get what Black people are thinking. That's where the, you know, the face-to-face -face conversations and knowing and feeling things. The anger, they think the Trump people are angry. I'm telling you, it is to a level of hatred of Black politicians. So much so, now you got all this competition, who's gonna be the next mayor? And you know, it has to be a Black woman. And you know what Black people are saying? F that. You know, we wanna go, if we go with anybody, it's gonna be the person who uh, who is doing something. Mm -hmm. And and here's the irony of it. With all, you know, cause they're gonna come with all this Black girl magic. <laughs> That shit is so demeaning to people. Black girl, what the fuck that mean? My children can't go to school because they're afraid of being shot. That's part of the truancy, you know? People are holding their children out of school. But so they're gonna come with this, you know? And it's interesting that probably the candidate that most black people will choose will be somebody that's not black, including Helen Ginn, because they're fed up with the way they've been misused by this traitorous black uh, misleadership class. And it's terrible. I mean, I just cannot explain. I, I talk too much. People see this carnage, and it is carnage. On our streets, can nobody say nothing, can nobody do nothing, and so on. It, every conversation, there is not a conversation you have with Black people. You say, hello, how you doing? How's the family? Next thing, these killings. It's, I, I never have we. You know, in fact, you know, we as Black people, we talk to each other, and I hope you all understand the context that I'm speaking from. They say, this, we have never experienced this level of violence in our history in this country, including doing Jim Crow, including under the rule of the Ku Klux Klan. This is kind of... 560 murders on the streets of Philadelphia of children of you. Get the fuck out of here. And nobody can't say nothing. Nobody can't do nothing. Let me tell you something. And we all know if it were black people killing white people, something would be done, as they say, with the quickness. Black people kill, oh, that's what they do anyway. <laughs> nothing is done. This erodes whatever goodwill Black people had towards the Democratic Party. In other words, I'm saying their disenchantment with the Democratic Party starts with the local Democrats who are now going to say, that, oh, come on out and vote for Shapiro and, and uh, Fetterman. And the average Black person said, F you. Yeah. Don't put that shit in my, in my door no more. Don't come here to tell me about voting. 
Am, am I lying, Sade? Is that the way I'm talking? You know, that's it, the anger. So also, I think I go ahead on no, Jerry. I'm sorry. I mean, apropos what you're saying, Yvonne has a comment. Oh, good. Um, yes. but it, it's, it's relevant to what we're talking about. He said, this week I received a quote voting report card for Yvonne King from the Voter Participation Center, with, which has, I guess people know about this, which has the Harrisburg address. In part, it stated, quote, Dear Yvonne, public records indicate that you are eligible to vote in the upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th. And then in bold font, it says, who you vote for is private, but whether or not you vote is a public record. And then in non-bold, it says, we're sending this mailing to you and your neighbors to share who does and does not vote in an effort to promote election participation. No, it's part of the while, strategy. Yeah. While we have hidden the name and street number of your neighbors to protect their privacy, the, these are their true voting records. And then there's a table with my first name, address, and whether or not I voted in each election since 2014, and two others with their names and street numbers uh, were blacked out. Then the letter continues with, quote, we will, we will be reviewing these records after the election to determine whether or not you joined your neighbors in voting, end quote. And so Yvonne is saying, I would like to know if anyone else received anything like this. My block is all black in West Philly. Is this an effort to, quote, threaten people to vote because of the fear that too many Black people may stay home okay. on November 8th? Yeah, I got the exact same card. Yeah, I got the exact same one. That's part of what you're supposed to say when you're door knocking now to get up the vote because you can see it. And so you're supposed to say, yeah, public records show that like you voted in this one, but not this one. We just want to make sure that you're gonna. And it's explained that like, supposedly psychologically, Whoa. this is the most like motivating thing, which is social pressure or like guilt and shame. Wow. And then yeah. the organizing team is like, you know, you may feel uncomfortable saying that and people may respond a certain way, but it actually will motivate them to vote. And, <laughs> but the thing is that nobody, like all of the canvassers, we like when we talk to each other, we're like, we're not doing that. Like that's messed up. And you like, maybe subliminally if you threaten them like some people may want to but i feel like it would really make me not want to because yeah it's really but that is i feel like a cal another calculated strategy that's just really awful and this is the democratic party yes, it is. the so-called party that's defending our democracy mm -hmm. well they also do like for sure Whoever is really behind that um, piece of mail, I do think what Yvonne's implying that they're targeting West Philadelphia and probably other specific areas mm -hmm. is true. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. specifically trying to target certain zones of certain cities mm -hmm. that they know have a certain type, like basically yeah. they think this is Black West Philly. Yeah. yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. Like we want them to come get us. Because I'm supposed to canvass Monday and Tuesday and I specifically have West and Southwest Philadelphia because it's known as like black working class, it's stable community, like usually historically have turned out the vote, hasn't really been as active in local elections lately, like 3% turnout in like the last Absolutely. local elections. Say that once again, in wards, mm -hmm. there were a couple of wards where in the last primary this year, yeah. The voter turnout of registered voters was 3%. Really low. There were a number where a number of wards that were below 8%.
In other words, 97 and 92% of registered yeah. voters did not vote. Yeah, that's... And they know, they know this. Mm -hmm. And in West Philly and North Philly and Southwest Philly, this is where the resistance is greater. Mm -hmm. In Northwest Philadelphia, where the political machine, the black political machine has a tighter hold on voter participation, you'll get more voting, but it'll be interesting this time around yeah. to see if Northwest Philadelphia, huge black working class, lower middle class professional <laughs> workers, that's Mount Erie, um, Germantown, parts of Chestnut Hill, you know, nicer areas. Will they also now join, as they said, the resistance? I mean, because it raises a really interesting question, which is which is actually more democratic? Is it showing up because you're be basically being forced at gunpoint to vote yeah. or the party that everyone knows is going to win Philadelphia? Is that more democratic or is withholding your vote mm. from that system? Is that an actual greater sign of yeah. democratic potential and aspiration? You know, um, and, and, and then of course, as I, I, you know, last night I said to my friend, I thought he knew that I voted for Trump in 2020. I said, I voted for Trump. What, Doc, you voted for Trump? I said, yeah. You know, I said, what's wrong with that? Well, you know, I said, well, what you should ask me is why I did. But it's, yeah, which further made me so upset with him. But, you know, I am predicting that if Trump won, runs in 2024, he can get upwards of 30% of the black vote. And his candidacy will create a situation where a large part of black voters, the black vote will not vote because they don't want him, they don't want to feel that they've done something bad, you know, by voting for Trump. And that's really what it is. You know, it's a moral judgment. Bad, Trump is bad. You voted. I said, no, I voted for war and peace. Mm -hmm. And it turned out I was right yeah. Oh, yeah. that I voted against the party of war. Mm -hmm. And if I vote this time, I'm voting against the party of war. I'm sorry, Dan. No, I, just, I wanted to just say that I, I, obviously there was also a continuum of why people voted for Biden. And so there were people who were just the left, quote unquote, and we're fighting fascism. Yeah. But there was like some people I know who they didn't want to hear politics. And so you know what I mean? Like it was like a vote of like, I don't want to have to hear this. Yeah, Trump. Uh, on, like yeah. I don't want to have to hear the news it's like about Trump. And of mm -hmm. course, I think what has also come about now is that was never going to go away from voting him out of all, right? Because now he's like the fixed idea that the Democrats are going to remind you about. So actually, I think even a further thing that's being shown is it's not about getting Trump out of office that would get that out of the news cycle because the Democrats are obsessed with it and they're the real cause of the kind of obsession. Yeah. Right. Like I, I think there were people who were just like, I don't want to hear it. I don't like hearing politics all the time. And I sympathize with that, as, you know, to some degree. Um, just that was a minor point. Yeah, no, yeah. but I, th I think it's a very important point. And I think the question is, 
how do you explain this phenomenon that is Trump? Yeah. Never in the history of the United States is there, I mean, you can go to Teddy Roosevelt or I don't know, even Lincoln, you know, there's never been anything like this. Never has the political system, certainly in the modern period, experienced such a crisis. This is maybe the greatest crisis in the history of the United States. And I say that because now they're all saying that, well, since the Civil War, you know, but no, we are living through the greatest political crisis in this country's history. Uh, the outcomes of it are could be the consequences and outcomes could be any number of things. I mean, so much so that country that states could secede again or act as though they were not a part of the union for whatever reasons. I mean, California, if Trump is elected, could act as though they don't want to, you know, they're not a part of the United States. And Texas, if a Democrat is elected in 2024, could act like they're not a part of the United States. The divisions and crises are that deep. And then somebody asked, somebody asked me, what about the cities? And again, even though the majority of people live in suburbs and small towns and rural areas, the cities, you get these big cities like Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and so on. These, Cleveland, and so these are still the centers of power and wealth of this country. You can't get around these, which means you can't get around the working class. Right. Can't get around them. And the working, and that's why, you know, again, our studies, I think, of Black Reconstruction and how Du Bois conceptualizes the working class is very, very important. <laughs> yeah. And I think what, just quick, once you see the working class in its totality, in its complexity, in its being and becoming, a lot of shit makes sense, man. <laughs> a lot of things become clearer, you know? I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, Nabila said, after when you mentioned that you voted for Trump, Nabila said, any mom told us the same thing yesterday, that he voted for Trump, she calls him Roman, to make Black people wake up. Um, and she asks, is this a crisis of voter, is this a crisis of voter apathy? Um, and then also a lot of people are saying that they like the new uh, camera camera format. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe I was saying that an imam said that he also voted for Trump to wake, people black, wake black people up. And then she also asks, is this a crisis of voter apathy? And then a lot of people are also saying that they like the new camera format. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. No, and, and see, it's very interesting that in the Islamic community, um, there is a more readiness, there's a, a, a greater readiness to violate the consensus, quote unquote, because Islam, even black Islam, has always been looked down upon and the politicians and the Democrats privilege the Christian churches. So that's very interesting. And I'm, I'm certain this same sentiment exists strongly in the nation of Islam. 
And then there was also um, like some like some interesting news from somewhere in Michigan, but there's like this whole like crisis in the public school system because a lot of um, Muslims in like Dearborn, Michigan, I think, were protesting the school, including like like trans like trans and like like LGBTQ material in like the yeah. like the yeah. yeah in the public school like reading and stuff. Yes. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was based on base like basically people remember that it was the Republicans who demonized like Muslim people after 9-11. But at this point it's like that sort of the confidence that that gave in the Democrats has worn very thin. Yeah. Or like the loyalty. Oh yeah. Has worn oh yeah. Oh yeah. And this the cultural wars yeah. and how Muslims see these issues is very important. Yeah. Because one of the reasons that Islam became so attractive in the black community is because of the feeling that black Christianity had become too secular and too liberal. Mm -hmm. And so a more traditional kind of uh, religious cultural values they saw in Islam. And that's why you see uh, uh, black people who are Muslims in the city uh, uh, you know, wearing the full garb. Now, a lot of it I just see as uh, superficial virtue signaling, but a lot of it is not. It is a statement about how they live or how they expect to live and how they raise their children. And uh, uh, Islam among, in the Black community is not so liberal as Black Christianity is. And, you know, so interesting that the nation of Islam on social issues might be the most liberal, more liberal than Sunni mosques among Black people on issues such as uh, LGBTQ and uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. Any other comments, Colin? Uh, not that I can see. All right, so I want to say a little bit about uh, Nouriel Rubini. I know Danny is reading it all. Uh, you have a degree in economics, right? Yeah, I, I have to leave soon, unfortunately, but I do want to talk about this. And I just. Oh, yeah, please. Okay. Don't yeah. leave too soon. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Danny. No, 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 no. Go, go ahead. I'm saying that I, I, I have to get across. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, Nouriel will be, and it's, it's, it's more a popularization, yeah. a popular. Um, he's like at NYU, I think. Yeah, he's at NYU, and it's, it's, it's not a technical book, although some of these issues are technical, and even in his popular rendering of them, it's still a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, but it's, it's mega threats. And I just want to say, just, and I haven't finished the book, I'm into, you know, um, he is saying, first of all, he assumes a world economic system, an integrated world economic system. And the global economy operates best when there are certain guidelines that all governments, especially the largest economies, uh, live by and function out of. Does that make sense where I put that? Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, he's, he sees uh, a world system, you know, first of all, rather than a 
um, a, a whole which is made up of parts. Uh, he sees a system and to understand these mega threats, you have to understand this is a system, uh, which means for me that Rubini does accept certain of the predispositions and assumptions of neoliberalism, you know, that finance capital uh, and uh, its major centers of power will uh, run the, the economy, the global economy, okay? Now, he says that the great threats to the system, the world system, not just the American financial system, but the world system results from those who command the commanding heights of the finance system and the governments that they run making bad policies. And policies that, uh, first of all, privilege uh, finance, financial institutions like banks, hedge funds, uh, investment houses, and so on. And he traces a lot of this back to the great crisis thus far was the 2008 financial collapse and then the recession that followed that. And he says that borrowers, meaning banks and, and so on, and corporations and governments had become addicted to debt and money printing. And that, let me see how to put this. For instance, what they call subprime mortgages. In other words, let's say I don't have a job and I go and apply for a mortgage. I can get a mortgage back in the days. And the mortgage company knows that I won't be able to pay it back. You know, I, I got a mortgage on a $300,000 house and I'm making $10 an hour, right? The mortgage company knows I won't be able to pay it back, but it doesn't care because what it did was bundle a lot of these bad mortgages together and then sold them to other financial institutions or mortgage companies or whatever. So if five of the mortgages failed, maybe 10 didn't fit him. And so we could make up the losses on the 10 that didn't fare. So it's all kinds of what, you know, again, we call nickel and dime espionage, uh, bait and switch. You think it's, you, the people thought they were getting one thing and it was something else, and then they lose their houses, they, you know, whatever. And it, it, was, uh, it was this, what they call boom and bust. So for a short period, it was a boom in the financial system, but it was a bubble that ultimately had to bust. And it was a big burst, bigger than any uh, that had occurred over the last 50 years up to that point. But nonetheless, even after, uh, quote, solving the problem, the government printing money uh, and, and 
saving these big banks and financial institutions by printing money, it merely put the government in bigger debt, which meant that the next bust or bubble bursting would not only be a bursting of a bubble, but it would be a bubble bursting in the midst of all of this debt, $32 trillion of government debt. And if you put consumer debt in that, you're up to something like $80 trillion, which is about four times the size of the US economy. By the way, just parenthetically, all of these numbers about the size of the US economy are inflated themselves. There are reasons to believe that since such that the, the economy being based on so much debt uh, and finance being such a big part of the economy, that whatever the numbers are, they take into account so much that is unproductive. So you say a GDP of $20 trillion, but how much of it is what we call superfluous or fictive production? You know, finance, the movement of money in the financial uh, and uh, mortgaging and debt industries, okay? Whereas, let's take China as an example, much smaller financial sector and big production. Germany, the same thing. The United States numbers might themselves be a fiction because of this huge role of finance capital. Nonetheless, uh, Rubini includes among the bubbles that are now busting cryptocurrencies, which was always an AI algorithm uh, casino scam. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay, Zay. Okay. I need someone's help. We have to need some, yeah. Uh, just, say, just say something. Uh, <laughs> oh. I really do want to talk about this tonight. That's why I ordered the book. But I had that interview with Michael Hudson that just published. Oh, yeah. That was me. And he, half of the interviews, he's talking about how the GDP accounting has been changed. So it's unfortunately I have to leave exactly at this moment. Yeah, I want to say this, but he does talk about how like a lot of the GDP is just like financial advisor fees. Wow! And so it just pumps it up. So, anyways, I sorry that this is. Oh, that's okay, man. Yeah, we'll talk. I'm gonna get the book and read it. Yeah, we'll be talking about it for some time. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, but um, I take care of that. But I just want to say this. This is a couple of. Oh, did you say that? I said I feel deprived of a good nerdy conversation. But Doc and Danny, they be going in. You know, for me, it's not so easy to understand these things. Right? Okay. Read in a day. Well, he can, but I'm not that qualified. I don't have that capability. It's, you know, um, because actually the world that he's talking about is such a different world. 
It is the world of finance right. and government and government financial policy. So there are a lot of um, uh, shorthand things that they use to describe things. For instance, you know, um, take this uh, subprime mortgage thing. Mm -hmm. You know, frankly, I just really came, began to fully understand it in the last year or so. Yeah, it's such a, it's, it's mm -hmm. a term that doesn't actually tell you anything about what actually Yes, happens. yes. Yeah. And, and so much of finance and economics, the way it is discussed by the, the experts, is to make things unclear. Right. It's like they, you know, when you talk about Wall Street, they'll, they'll talk about the markets responded. Did you ever hear that? Right. Well, they're talking about the stock markets. They're not talking about the markets, which is, you know, people buying and selling. It's but, like that thing where a lot of, a lot of things, they get into like uppercase, like terminology versus lowercase terminology. So I guess when they say the markets, they're going to like, like you said, stock market, but then we might be thinking about like a lowercase market. Yeah, like yeah, market yeah. Capital. No, I'm yeah. telling you, and that's intentional. Mm -hmm. And and all of the uh, uh, big uh, newspapers, Time, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all of them are complicit. Right. So it is to obscure a lot of what is going on from the masses of people and but the language is understood by those who are investors, stockbrokers, and all that type of thing. Just like cryptocurrency. The first time this uh, Nuri Obrubini says in this book that cryptocurrency was a fake, um, finan was a financial instrument that was uh, a fake. Uh, uh, and everybody wanted to get in on it, be the first one in it, and get the deals and get make the money and so on and so forth. And come to find out it was all a fraud. A financial instrument where some people could make a lot of money, but most people would invest in it and lose heavily. Okay. Uh, but this, this unclarity about what, what is what is economics, what is economic policy, what is the is a result objectively of an economy run by bankers and financiers, mm -hmm. a very tiny part of the population. What we think about are the day-to-day -day questions of an economy. How much are my wages? How much is bread at the supermarket? What is gas? Uh, uh, if I, uh, what is my mortgage cost? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's the real economy. But the but those that run the economy don't operate off the rules of the real economy. And you know, and so ironically, the rebellion against the Democrats, who are the party of big finance, is a rebellion against this very narrative. That's why people are so anti-elites, mm -hmm. anti-universities. They feel that universities are places that construct all of this language and, and shit, you know, um, and, and even with the culture wars, mm -hmm. you know, um, people have a right to say in a broad sense what 
the cultural and social curriculum is in an elementary school. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm paying these salaries, so how the hell do I count? And that's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, and the excesses of both the obscurantism and, and university, if I might just say, university curricula obscure more than they clarify. In the economic realm, you know, you can go to um, a Wharton School of Economics and still not know what the hell is happening. Uh, you could be in the liberal arts at an elite university and come out and, and be as confused as, as they get because, I'll use this language, the categories of knowledge have been so corrupted that things don't make sense anymore. Now, categories of knowledge are a reflection of being or should be. Not, they're not the existence of being itself, but it is a reflection. But when those categories are corrupted, they no longer have a relationship to the actual existing things. They have, I mean, it's out of control. And people instinctively know it. That's why they're against universities. They don't like university professors. They don't uh, trust them. They feel that these people are in it for themselves, and they are, and that they lie, and they do. And I can tell, you know, again, I talk about my own experience here. You know, I was driven out of the university position because of what I believe and what my values are, and because I teach things that were unacceptable in the quote department that I was in, and and that you know, uh, for many people it wasn't a big deal. For some people it was a big deal, and people fought, and and you know it's interesting. That even even uh, seven years after, people are still processing and learning from that. It was a it was a grotesque thing, and then and this this is what um, put the icing on the cake. You know, so people said, "Well, you're getting rid of uh, Dr. Montero. That does that mean?" that you're not going to teach Du Bois in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what this airhead that goes as a professor and a smart man said, no, well, we don't need Du Bois at this time. Can you imagine? And in fact, we're moving towards culture. And people said, what culture? Hip hop culture. Oh. Can you? You know, and, and any, any person with a little bit of self-respect as a Black person, I'm not talking about a Black person with a little bit that you would replace Du Bois with Jay-Z and Lil Jeezy and them people. I feel bad for those students. Like, imagine you paying That's right. to go to school mm -hmm. and your professor's saying we're about to learn about hip-hop. 
Yes, the administration wanted that because what is more threatening than ideological clarity? What is more threatening than the truths that could come from a Du Bois or Baldwin? Right. What is more threatening than the construction or, or thinking through categories that reflect reality? I mean, so the university, not just the knuckleheads in that department and the frauds, you know, in that department, but the board of trustees, the president, the provost, the dean, you are all a part of this because to keep young black people dumb is to guarantee that they will not be activists in the struggle against Temple's gentrification of North Philadelphia. This is what we're up against. And that, again, that is why I was so uh, kind of upset with this friend of mine who was so dumb, but he participated with me in the struggle for my job. But, but come on, man, can't you see the connectedness? But yeah, this is, this is what we're faced with. And this is why Du Bois, what we do is so important. I don't care how you twist it. I don't care how you twist it because in a time where people are searching, people have a way of finding something that is that resonates with them as truthful. Mm -hmm. People have a way. They might not come here, but they know, mm -hmm. they hear, they listen, you know? Yeah. In Philadelphia, a lot of people, what is Dr. Montero saying? Yeah. Dr. Montero, he, you know, that type of thing. So it, you know, and they don't ask about what does, <laughs> you know, homeboy that's the head of the department at Temple, what he's saying. Because he's discredited. You know, believe me. And that's why, and I, I just say this, never give up. I don't mean be reckless. Please never be reckless. We have many examples of that. You know, people going to be the revolutionary of all time. Then you got to do some shit that they get you messed up and locked up, you know. Mm -hmm. But never give up on the truth. Never abandon ideas. That's what sustains you. That's oxygen. You know what I'm saying? Never could give up on great ideas, great art, great music. Keep you going, man. Because in your life, you're going to see a lot of your peers uh, spiral out of control. They lose control of themselves. They become depressed. Maybe not in their 20s so much, although many in their 20s, certainly in their 30s. You'll see it. You know, Samir knows all the activists that you almost had you locked up. Yeah, at Temple. Where are they now? You know, I always ask, Samir, where's so I don't know. You know, you know, she had a sex change. You know, okay, where's that? You don't know. Because 
what was motivating them was nothing deep and enduring and profound. You know, a lot of times just to be a part of the crowd, you, they're easy to identify. They usually have the loudest mouths, you know, or just to be in the mix, just to say, you know, whatever. Maybe just a virtue signal. But they don't last long. Ideas, art, music. Oh, that shit, it, it's, it's oxygen. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, um, just to really speak to what you're talking about, what great ideas did Du Bois propose for us to understand our American context? Well, he starts his Black Reconstruction on the Black worker and the white worker and the planter and the industrialist. And this, you know, this understanding that, you know, he pulls, I think, from Marxism of class dynamics in a society, which I think, you know, growing up through the postmodern uh, moment that we're in mm -hmm. and the fall of the Soviet Union or the overthrow of the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, uh, I think ideologically speaking, people were given this idea that, oh, well, Marxism isn't true because this government failed or was mm -hmm. defeated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people just accepted that, accepted that, no, oh, maybe there aren't classes. Maybe it's just, this is the objective truth <laughs> and science and economics and mathematics, you know, they aren't overdetermined by anything at all. They're just, this is just, you know, we, we can be told what we need to know from uh, some sort of quote unquote objective independent thing outside of some kind of class dynamic. Um, but, you know, as we see now, it's, people are becoming more and more conscious of the fact that class is just a reality. I mean, that's yeah. people who are, you know, uh, quote unquote, uneducated white voters in Pennsylvania might not be able to um, articulate with, with the accuracy of a Du Bois, um, but they're recognizing where their livelihoods are standing yeah. in this moment. And so they can be distrustful of a university that says, no, we have the truth from on high. You can just, you know, this, we have our objective scientists who've looked into this and, uh, you know, you're just racist. That's what it is, you know? Um, but to, to really try to get at an understanding that's deeper, that's, um, you know, comes from this more um, holistic approach of dynamics in, interplaying with one another. Um, yeah. and, and that, you know, this is, uh, I think Lenin said, you know, that, that Marxism is omnipotent because it's true. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we, every historical moment is gonna have setbacks. But, you know, and the truth won't always be, um, you know, shining through in each particular moment. But if it is, if, if something, if analysis is true, if it actually speaks to the reality in which we live, then ultimately there's nothing you can do to defeat them. Right. Like that's and just, see, this is the key. You're right about it. I agree with that. That's just going to explain the situation I, in a much more clear way. That's right. And right now people use the word globalist, right? <laughs> which there's a class dynamic there, right? <laughs> There is a group of people who want to control the world in a hegemonic way by the U.S. dollar, and maybe they don't have, they haven't read, you know, Lenin's, you know, uh, State and Revolution or Imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, but the, you know, these things are dawning on people that they have a relationship to war in their own communities, and and hearing someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene say that you know not a single penny will go to Ukraine if we win, mm -hmm. people identifying with that is understanding class, even if they're not completely aware of it yet. Um, and so the, the rejection of that from the Democratic Party is, oh, no, there's no, there's no uh, issue here. We're, <laughs> you know, we're doing things as best that things could possibly process. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the misunderstanding comes from 
the ruling class or many people in the ruling class believing their own propaganda and thinking, oh yeah, we can just move some numbers around here and structure the debt this way. And but ultimately, you know, understanding that class is a decaying class. It's only going to suck more blood the longer it survives and bring down everything around it, as we see. Um, you know, how many people can keep going off a cliff and not seeing the signs everywhere? You know? <laughs> so most of us, most of the people we, we interact with are starting to, to have a realization of that. And very wonderful thing. Right? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. But yet, you know, and, and again, I, I think you would agree with me that as a nation, we're entering into a danger zone. Yeah. A, a very dangerous zone. But um, if, if we might, I'd like to turn before we have to leave to the Kanye West Kyrie Irving situation. Um, you know, let, let, let me, uh, you know, this kind of attack is not new. Um, again, you know, you, you listen to me talk, I'm always talking about how personally um, humiliating some of this is. For example, um, Kanye West after he was pressured, released this first statement, I didn't mean what I said, what, what you said, I, whatever, whatever, you know. And they said, well, we don't accept it because he didn't apologize. Let me explain something about this black man always being required to apologize. First of all, before we get there, you see the ADL, the Southern Poverty Law Center and other Jewish quote, civil rights organizations exist to police the thought and words of black folk, especially black male celebrities. That's their job. As though we were children who needed policing, thought police. That's all they exist for. And then because these Jewish organizations are really the height of white supremacist, because of the two-facedness. You know, um, they assume that if they don't police Black thought and Black speech, Black people will be out of control. In the 80s and 90s, they went so far to let you know that this is not new, as to based upon their polling data, I'm talking about the Southern Poverty Law Center, the ADL, and certain others, because they're, they're a plethora of these Jewish organizations that are deeply anti-Black. Believe me, anti-Black. Not just anti-nation of Islam, anti-Black. They came out with, quote, studies that showed that Black people were the most anti-Semitic population or group in the American population. Can you imagine? And we had no, we couldn't respond because they had an army of bought off black people 
who would parrot what they were saying. You know, this is part of the oppression of Black folk. There are many sides to this. And it's very difficult always to understand because they are hidden cabals that are operating against us. Um, this is one facet of it, to brand us, the people who fought for democracy. And, and you know, Emily, I think you sent it to me, yes, that Du Bois said, uh, except in the hearts of Black people, democracy had more or less died. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Black folk are the most democratic, the least anti-Semitic, but they don't want to be pushed around. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be bullied because you got money, because you bought off the Black Congressional Caucus or Kareem Abdul-Jamar or or uh, what's his name, Barkley. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Now, this episode is a recent one in this long history that more or less begins after the civil rights movement in the 70s. And its first iteration was over the Palestinian question. Mm. Black young people who were anti-colonial, pro-Vietnam liberation, pro the liberation of Southern Africa, realized that Israel was a strategic ally of apartheid South Africa and had traded nuclear secrets with them and had a direct relationship with the diamond trade in South Africa. And we, it didn't take rocket science to say that you're in collusion with the South Africans and you're also taking the land away from the Palestinians. We have more in common with the Palestinians than we do with you. Okay, that in <laughs> itself made us anti-Semitic. They control the media. We had no way, although, you know, we protested and we, you know, continue to educate the people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then you get, you know, high profile black politicians that ran interference for them. But that was the first instance of it. But, but we always linked the, the freedom of the Palestinians to the freedom of the South Africans and to our own freedom. Mm -hmm. We always did. I'm talking about those who were freedom fighters and anti-colonial. So that's the first instance of it. But then they don't wanna let it go because they're, they're almost like a, a, a branch of the FBI. You know, in, in all of our speech, whatever we say, somehow they find out about it, which, Ain't nobody saying nothing underground and speak, you know. <laughs> then the issue of affirmative action comes up. And there was a plan called the Philadelphia Plan for the construction industry, where Black workers were excluded 
from carpenters, plumbers, all the skilled trades. So this was found to be in violation of federal law and of the civil rights laws. And so uh, a strong push was made that these unions and these industries be compelled to hire black apprentices as carpenters, as electricians, as plumbers, and on and on. These are what we call the skilled trades. Historically, the most racist part of the union movement. And they said under the Philadelphia plan that you must not only say you're going to do this, but we want a timetable and quotas. The first year, three, the next, you know, 10, whatever. That there be a timetable with quotas. The Jewish organization. Now, of course, there's going to be somebody. Come, no, but there was a Jewish lawyer that represented the black. Yes. But we're talking about the powerful institutional leadership of Jewish thought and life. Okay. Are there, are there pro-black uh, anti-colonial Jews? Yes. Yes. Einstein was one of them. But that does not, you can't use that to then say that what the powerful institutions of the Jewish community or the Jewish people are doing against Black people. So they came out with, the, when we came out with the Philadelphia Plan, affirmative action with quotas, timetables. Oh, we're against that. I thought you were with us. No, we're against it because of the word quotas and Hitler used quotas against the Jews in Nazi Germany. Hell, that got to do with this. So what, we black people are now the Nazis. You, you understand what I'm, so, now let me tell you, and I, I said this to Emily, I talked to her about, at one time, Black people, this is going back to the 20s and 30s, we looked at the Jews as our best allies among the white population. You know, it's nothing like the faith of a very simple people. Faith, belief in people. So much so that you would, I would hear on the radio, which I didn't accept then. I mean, I was just a teenager. They would on a black talk radio show, they'd be saying things like, look, the Jews were discriminated and couldn't go into hotels in Miami and all that type of thing. And what did they do? They bought the hotels. You see what I'm saying? Which means that if we don't buy the hotels, you know, we're complicit in the discrimination against us. But nobody says that the Jews had already from the 19th century in America and certainly from Europe accumulated significant wealth that we never had, okay? So then if you say anything, if, you, if you're critical of Israel, then you're an anti-Semite and uh, the Jews have a right to Israel and anywhere else they want to be because they were the victims of the Holocaust, okay? I mean, it, but how could you promote it? Because you had 
such power and control in the media, in academia, in the, in the positions that counted. Black folk never had that. And so you could literally brand and say what you wanted about us. Now, okay. So outside of the bootlickers, you understand that apologists are being paid by them and whose political careers are financed by them. The masses of black people, we're beginning to say, well, you know, what is this about? We never oppressed you. You understand? We have questions about you. You know, you, you are allies, but then we know that you own stores and, and slums in our community where you sold bad meat. And because we couldn't go outside of our own neighborhoods, we were dependent upon that. You had high prices, slum landlords. That's not all, not everybody, but enough. We know about that. We have a right to question it. We know about Israel's connection to South Africa. We have a right to question it. That makes us anti-Semitic, right? Okay, so I'm just saying all of this to say that this finger pointing and uh, thought control and language control has a history. Now, then we come to the second resurrection and Minister Louis Farrakhan. The eldest son, no, the seventh son, maybe the, the seventh son of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, his name is Wallace Muhammad, after his father died, disbanded the nation of Islam and created a new thing called the World Community of Islam. Denounced his father, <clears throat> said, for example, that race had no place in Islam. In fact, if you go up to Germantown, Avenue up where, huh? Yeah, there's a big uh, billboard put out by, even to right now, Islam knows no race. You know what I'm saying? And Elijah Muhammad never said what, quote, Islam says about race. It's what we're saying about race. So we're not being dictated to by Sunni, Shiite, or whoever. And, and you know, even Elijah Muhammad said, black people got too much religion, we need a social movement. But that's another story. Okay, but Farrakhan, and I really don't know how he was able to do this. He put his life on the line, I mean, just his health, and rebuilt the nation of Islam. That's what we call the second resurrection. And that's why you will hear them say the most honorable Elijah Muhammad and the honorable Louis Farrakhan, because they believe, and I think accurately, that the second resurrection is as important as the first. Because we were not supposed to have a nation of Islam today if it were left up to Wallace Muhammad. Okay, so Farrakhan is super outspoken, super articulate. 
Black people listen to Louis Farrakhan. He is probably the most significant voice in Black America and has been for many decades. You know, that's why the constant attacks upon him to discredit him. You see what I'm saying? Because he is this anti-establishment voice who reflects more than not the sentiments of ordinary black people. You know, he speaks out against oppression. But then he decides somewhere in the 1990s, recalling now that the second resurrection only begins in about 1980. So Farrakhan will be speaking all around the country. If you go on YouTube, you see him on uh, different shows back in the days, and he's speaking and defending the nation of Islam, and yada, 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 and defending Black folk. I don't care whether, who the Black person was, he would defend them, the MOVE organization, uh, whoever. And he was always trying to stand for unity among Black people. I, I even said to a brother, a Jerome, I said, I think y'all are too bending over too much to win the support of these rappers. They ain't worth it, you know, because he did, you know, bring them into, if I can talk to them. And a lot of them, you know, are favorable towards him, like Ice Cube. You know what I'm saying? They can't say it because they're in Hollywood, you know, and a whole number of others like Rakim, a lot in the in the 5% nation, they are favorable to Farrakhan, but they can't say it, you know, uh, because he's the only black leader that tried to listen to them, talk to them. Uh, but then he comes up with the idea, this is, eventually 15 years after the beginning of the second resurrection with a million man march on Washington where black men would stand up in the nation's capital. Pretty much symbolic, but at that time we needed a powerful symbol of our unity, of our capacity. And it turns out at least a million and a half black men answered that call. And so all over the world now, you hear like in Pakistan or in Iran, a million man march. Everybody's having million man marches. Um, but that was a great event. And um, uh, feminists of all races attacked, especially black feminists, Angela, uh, I think um, others. But then mainstream black women like Rosa Parks, Maya Angelou, um, um, uh, Coretta Scott King, all of these people were on the stage at the million because they understood its meaning. A show of unity and solidarity of a people who were being buffeted and and lied to. And of course, this is the same time with Clinton, uh, according to, um, according to uh, uh, 
Toni Morrison was the first black president, we went off when she said that, was passing the bill that would lock up a whole, damn near a whole generation of young black men for drug offenses that did not apply to white people. It decimated the community. At the same time, Farrakhan is calling for us to march on Washington. Now, it would not have been a problem with a million man march if it were not Farrakhan. Well, the other thing is, could nobody else, nobody else had the moral authority to pull it off? Nobody, then or now, he's still the one. A million and a half. And you see the pictures, all of these men standing dignified, the fruit of Islam in formation. A dignified, I mean, come on, man. The Jewish organizations disproves it. They're anti-Semitic. They're anti-Semitic. At that point, Black people. And, and you know, I, I often try to express not just what happened, but the feelings of an oppressed people. So, well, fuck y'all. Fuck y'all. Okay, but at the same time, a very cunning program which says, well, but we have almost complete control in Hollywood. So this Spike Lee will help him make movies. There are others. And then we have tremendous control over the entertainment and record. And that's why, so, uh, Snoop Dogg, these are all creations, inventions. This is not great black music, you know. This is music that demeans black people. But if you are opposed to the Million Man March and dignity and moral capacity, which it was about, by the way, then you come with this, to undermine dignity, to say to young black men, the killer is the hero. The gangster is the hero, not the freedom fighter. You dig what I'm saying? So you get the Million Man March and then if you trace it, I think you noticed, Jerry, that gangster rap is traced to the early 90s, about 1994. They said, well, when did gangs, you know, when you had a more positive, well, more positive rap, like Tupac, maybe Biggie, Public Enemy, KRS, Rakim, that type of thing, which was identified with the East Coast, which is very interesting. Then about the time of the Million Man March, here come gangster rap, Dr. Dre, and all them perpetrators. And suddenly, while KRS one public enemy and then begin to fade, this shit, don't forget the West Coast, Hollywood, center of the entertainment industry, becomes the voice and face of hip hop and rap, right? Okay, you see, you see the picture? Now, Music and celebrity and representation influences behavior. If I'm 12 years old, 
and all I hear is a love supreme and ooh, baby, baby, and love's in need of love today, that's my moral standard. That might violate it, but that's my, I know right and wrong. But if all I hear is bitch and hoe, that's gonna influence the way I see the world, the way I see myself. And since now we got videos all over the damn place and how I behave, okay? So one on the one side, the black male and black young male is most vulnerable, but then the resolution of the crisis of vulnerability is the thug. That is not the only alternative. Never was. But it is a rupture and break with a history of the greatest music in Western civilization in the modern period. There's no question about it. It's the, it's the European classical music and Black music. Not that they're an antagonistic contradiction, but they are equal paradigms. Okay. Then you break that down, and this becomes the face of Black music, not Stevie Wonder, not Duke Ellington, not any of I mean, This is not us. Somebody had to promote it. And some people that had power had to promote it. And then it becomes a justification for the Clinton crime bill, locking up everybody. Because they're nothing but criminals. Look at their representation. Great confusion is then thrown into the black people. And because, you know, just like with anything else, when something has a powerful media presence, those who identify with it are encouraged. So you say somebody like, you know, then they, then they start teaching hip hop in all the universities. It becomes a part of, quote, black studies. Not Ellington. Not Billie Holiday, but hip-hop. Okay, so you're hitting us all different kinds of ways. So you get, let's, let's say, I'm, I'm going to use myself again as an example. Okay, I'm kicking back against it. I'm teaching a temple. I'm talking about uh, the five stages, the five uh, genre of Black music. And I say they all center around love. I don't include hip-hop. And I say that R&B is not R&B, it's the Black romantic ideal. It is Black man, Black woman singing to Black man, Black woman. You know, like, like uh, you hear uh, Smokey say, or somebody, from my hair, your hair is woolly, woolly as a lamb. So you're not talking about white hair, you're talking about Black hair. You dig what I'm saying? I look into your brown eyes. You see what I'm saying? I'm not singing Gershwin and giving it soul. I'm singing my own shit. You know, like, like uh, uh, William Hart Muhammad. La, la, la means I love you. And then he said, I was really talking about Allah means I love you. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Russell, you know, you make me feel brand new. You know, what you have done for me. I mean, all that, that. These are black men. Tender, loving. But yet, how we get this other thing going? Where that come from? Nobody could explain it. 
Then they start saying, well, that's because they went to jail and they came out and they didn't have me. No, baby, the slaves ain't had no all that. They ain't talk no shit like this. Where did it come from? Okay, now, Kanye. I know exactly what he's saying. Okay, Kanye is always emotionally, psychologically fragile. Since his mother's death, Brilliant young man, fashions, all of that. He begins to question things. Just like the way I'm talking. You know, what? who's behind this poison being injected into the veins of children? Is this music or is this ideology and propaganda? teaching self-hate to children. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Teaching self-hate to children. Mm -hmm. And then Mark Lamont Hill come out trying to get paid and be famous, talking about he, going, he got a hip-hop pedagogy. I said, what's wrong with a good pedagogy to teach math? You going to, how are you going to teach math? Well, I can teach it by showing the beats and rhymes. Well, one and one is still two. You know what I'm saying? Fuck you talking about. In other words, you're going to contribute through your so-called pedagogy to the dummying down of Black people. Stop. They have to start with the children. So now we're about two and a half, three generations out from the origins of this and generations that have not heard, you know, like uh, uh, the Hawkins, uh, they call the their, their, their choir out in California, the love alive. Uh, I mean, everything, everything is love, love, you know, in black music, everything. You understand? Love of the people, Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye. What's going on, brother? You just back from Vietnam, the spirit of love. Fuck, we get this. You had to trump the love ethic, Martin Luther King, with the thug ethic. They did it. And that's what Kanye is asking about. And he asked the question, how is it that so many people that's running this have names that are associated with Eastern European jewelry? How? Isn't that a legitimate, if there were morally upstanding Jews, why don't y'all ask that fucking question? Kanye is asking that in his moment of deep distress. I am unhappy with where my people are going and how our art and music is controlled by other, others than us, who are happy to see us calling our mothers and sisters and everybody else a bitch. And it's ain't never happened in human history. I don't know of any civilization where a musical form, which is exported all over the world, young men calling women bitches, never. 
So where did it come from when there's no history of it? In fact, the history is the opposite. That is what Kanye is asking. And he said, I saw a video of, he said, I'm gonna show you what anti-Semitism is. And he began to rap something about, you know, good bitch, I'll kill you nigga and all that. You know, did you see that? He said, that's anti-Semitism. Now, he's doing something satirical and ironic because he's saying, first of all, I can't be, he said, I can't be anti-Semitic because I'm a black Jew. Yeah, but see, black people have their way of doing things. He said, I'm a black Jew. I'm a Hebrew Israelite. I'm an original Jew, and y'all are the fake Jews. Now, that's a historical question. I'm not going to try to answer it here. Let the theologians debate that. Who were the real Jews? <laughs> but but you, you see the point? No. But the very fact that he questioned is enough. It's a crime to even question these power relationships. It's a crime. And you must be destroyed because you question it. Now, Kyrie. Kyrie tweeted a documentary. And I just today, Emily showed me what the documentary was. And I will listen to it. But hold it, he didn't even comment upon it. He posted it. And hence, that makes him an anti-Semite. To be... What's the documentary about? It's called Hebrews to Negroes. Okay. Wake up, Black America. Yeah, this is all Black Israelite stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A Hebrew, Hebrew Israelite. Look. Do we, okay, in, in the Jewish community, they have all kinds of versions of Judaism, right? Uh, some are Zionists, some are anti-Zionists. Most are pro-Israel, most are, some are not. Uh, there is a strong, strong white supremacist anti-Black trend within certain elements of Judaism as practiced in the West. You know what I'm saying? The, the concept of the chosen people itself carries elements of white supremacy. Because you're saying that whatever you all have experienced mm -hmm. trumps every other form of oppression, mm -hmm. such as the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll just I'll just get to the end of this. You can get my opinion. Why now? Why? You see, and first of all, let, let's say this. Most people in the hip-hop community of rappers and, and all that does, and in the fashion community, they down with Kanye. Ain't no black people going against on not on these grounds. In the NBA, all those players, all those black players. Shit, that you think Kevin Durant, maybe LeBron James, he's a sellout, you know, and got paid too much. But most of them got that Westfield thing. Um, uh, this cat with the beard here in Philadelphia, Harden. who Harden, they're not going down, they're not going against Kanye because they feel the same thing. 
They feel the same way. And what they are questioning at the end of the day are unequal relationships yes. of power. Yes. And the ideological control mm -hmm. over them personally. Keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. How long can you keep your mouth shut? I'm a man. Fuck you. And then I'm, I'm going to end on, excuse my cursing. Why are we the ones that always have to apologize? Mm -hmm. No, nobody apologize to us. You can lock us up, do whatever the fuck you want. Mm -hmm. Ain't no apologies came our way. So who made Jews the judge and juries over Black people? Who are you? What makes you so pure? Oh, the European Holocaust? I don't think so. And then you take uh, Norman Finkelstein, they excommunicated him from the Jews because he wrote a book called The Holocaust Industry. And he said, my parents were survivors of the Holocaust. And they ain't got paid yet, but all the lawyers and, or, and Jewish organizations took all the money off the top. And as to the numbers of people killed, it was Finkelstein who said that the number ain't six million, it's closer to five. Mm -hmm. That ain't a big deal, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know? So Kanye and them, they don't like as they shouldn't like to be treated this way, as though you are right just as long as you playing basketball and making money for yeah. us. And see the question, and this is in a period, I should say, of the diminution of the whole hip hop quote culture. Young people like, like Sade and my friend here, <laughs> they, they're looking for something spiritually more affirming. Can't live that way. You can't raise your children with that bullshit. So it's, I think it has run its course. Mm -hmm. Some people are gonna try to keep it going, but increasingly young people, look, young black people in particular, are looking for something better, something that is more appropriate to their humanity, what they deserve, how they deserve to be talked about and treated in popular culture. I think that's true, Doc. Say that again. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. I know, I know. I can feel, and so, so now you're gonna come down, no, no, no. Ain't no black person going along with that bullshit. Yeah, Kareem Abdul-Jamal, big Uncle Tom, fuck you. Keep your damn mouth shut. Charles Barkley came out and said, well, they need to suspend Kanye. Punk, shut up. I'm speaking black language, black street language. <coughs> Keep your damn mouth shut, you know? And this is where we are. And I, I hate to, I, I'll end it on that, but this is what it is. And why now, it, I think it has something to do with this damn election and mm. how they're over, but they're overplaying their hand because it ain't, we don't give a fuck no more. 
we really don't care. And these young rappers, these young basketball players, they're saying, uh-uh. Oh, by the way, you know, the Brooklyn Nets that Kanye plays for, the Kyrie. players, huh? Kyrie, Kyrie, I'm sorry. The players are so powerful, they got the coach kicked out. Yeah, the players run that shit. And the black players, and they bring all the Russians and Eastern Europe, no, dog. Y'all gonna have to come under our system. Fuck y'all. Because, see, they want, it's just like with boxing. See, they try to promote white faces in the game, you know, to make it more marketable to white people. But see, these black players know what's going on, and they're angry. I'm speaking in an angry tone. I can't imagine the way they're talking among themselves. I'll, I'll stop there. Go ahead, Emily. Oh, oh go, go ahead, Samir. Um, no, I mean, it reminds me of um, the Eagles wide receiver, yes. uh, Riley Cooper, who was at a country concert. And he said, you know, I'll fight every N-word here. And he was on video. And I, I'm not even sure if he got suspended. Maybe he's, he's a white guy. He's a white guy. And uh, the level of outrage is just not the same. And that's my you know, experience in the you know, Palestinian student movement is that um, people are aware that, you know, what you said, like this happened to Natalie Abuhala and her daughter lost a job because she had some tweets when she was a kid, 14 or something. Um, and then it gets posted online by Canary Mission. Yeah. And, you know, tell them who Canary Mission is. Uh, Canary Mission is, is a shadowy organization, probably a nonprofit um, uh, organization that puts professors, students, and things are right wing organizations. So they're focused on universities because they think universities are left wing. Mm -hmm. But professors, students, and organizations, and it puts a profile and it tracks you on social media. So if you say anything, uh, critical of Israel or sometimes actually anti-Semitic, um, it'll, you know, uh, send it to your workplace or people will Google you and that'll come up. In other, word, in other words, controlling speech of university students and professors in the Palestinian movement. Yeah, you know, the, for the purposes of harming your uh, career right. um, or future career if you're a student. And um, it's just not the same, you know, level of intensity and people don't have the same energy coming for Riley Cooper, people don't have the same energy to cancel, you know, these programs where people where police go to Israel and, you know, train police in, you know, basically apartheid practices, you know, how to put down a crowd, how to control a crowd, how to, you know, anti-terrorism for Philadelphia police, what the hell? Um, there's, there's not the same amount of energy to, uh, to cancel that. And then, you know, I, I finally am beginning to understand this whole point, whole point of Black music and how, what went wrong, where Black men used to be able to say, you know, I love you, or to mm -hmm. sing in a high voice. And now Black music is forced into a box where men have to be like, no, I'm hard, I'm making money, I don't love any woman. Um, and it just uh, prevents Black men from being authentically themselves mm -hmm. for other Black men to hear mm -hmm. other authentic Black, you know, male voices. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, uh, speaking of Ice Cube, you know, he used to be this really hard gangster rapper and, you know, I listened to that, uh, his California stuff. And, but now he is, uh, he's completely rebranded 
and he keeps on doing those children's films. You know, where, where are we there yet? And are we there yet too? And Barber Shop. And so it's just very funny to watch. Yeah, and seeing with Snoop Dogg, you know, all those death row records to doing uh, marketing campaigns with, what's her name? The other fellow in the store, Martha Stewart. And um, it's all, and you know, uh, Will Smith too. It's all branding. Absolutely. Campaign. It's all advertising. That's where he really fucked up. He didn't, you know, slap Chris Rock. Don't mm -hmm. give the shit up, Chris Rock. Mm -hmm. He fucked up his branding. That's you right. know, his That's PR right. people are like, oh no, you're the family man. Yeah. You're on an Oscar run and yeah. you fucked it up because you lost control. Mm -hmm. um, because all these celebrities, uh, really, they're all kids on the inside. They, they didn't have their own childhood. They've been told what to do uh, when they're on the set or, you know, whatnot. All the attention is on them. So we already are at a point in society where society worships children. We're just in the reactionary form of that. Yeah. And yeah. we just need to transform it, you know, yeah. into the progressive form. Yeah. And um, so this is all, you know. Uh, no, it is all it, what we call social engineering. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is used to undermine a people who have a capacity for struggle and have proven mm -hmm. it. It's because you were gonna say something. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this. Uh, you know, I didn't actually watch almost any of the interviews. I saw a small bit yeah. of, I think, a Lex Friedman interview. He was mm -hmm. telling Kanye, you know, you should do this. You should listen to your father. You should watch it. No, who saying. said that? Lex Friedman, like YouTuber, yeah, like this podcast, podcaster. podcaster. Mm -hmm. And Kanye said, you know, I don't trust you. I don't have to listen to what you have to say. I'm not your Black Lives Matter march. Mm -hmm. um, and so I yeah, thought that was interesting. But but I really think this kind of reminds me of the Dave Chappelle controversy in Absolutely. a way. Because, oh, yeah. You know, like I don't think it would be this big a deal if there was no truth behind it. Yeah. The fact that there's something in it that's true is what's making it yes. that much more inflamed. But it was just yeah. ridiculous that no one would take it seriously because he's actually and I, I should say I, I haven't seen the interviews, so I can't say much, but just from the background, just from the outside looking in. I got to think there's something to this. There's so much smoke. There has to be something there. Yeah. Um, and, um, but also, I mean, it's just, I can't help but um, recognize the moment we're in this country where we're literally sending billions of dollars to actual Nazis, right? right, right. right. Celebrating Azov members who are you know, going to talks in Stanford right. and other parts of the country, you know, being given medals. <laughs> um, so, how does it how does that all fit together? Because if you're okay with sending weapons to people who are literally howling Hitler, you know, yeah. using those weapons yeah. to kill presumably minorities and anyone who can. Um, and then you can have this this unbelievable um, you know, I think people call it crocodile tears, you know, about, about mm -hmm. this uh, what what film that Kyrie promoted. Um, you know, and it's interesting. I was actually thinking about Charles Barkley too because I actually bumped into him in a restaurant a oh, couple okay. years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realize he was there. I turned around and there's this giant, you know, black man who's yeah. speaking very uh, eloquently about uh, finances and real estate. And <laughs> voice, I'm even familiar with him. Very, I mean, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. white voice mm -hmm. to this uh, white woman that he was speaking with at the bar. And I, I was kind of stunned for a minute because I, I'm recognizing from his, mm -hmm. you know, I used to watch more basketball and he'd do these halftime reports where he's, you know, very much in the character of, yeah, you know, right, right, right. Um, so just playing the role that black people are supposed to play on TV. 
which like you said is stupid um you know just less than less than always less than can't think independently and when they do when they do think independently they're crazy um it's so that's yeah i mean mm -hmm. it, it just kind of speaks to what you're saying that that um mm. you know there's a yeah. kind of issue there yeah go, go ahead Jenna. no i mean I, I don't know if people have are aware but baldwin has this essay called yeah. negroes are anti-semitic because they're anti-white where Basically, he's saying that he's like, I don't know if Jewish people control the media, control mm -hmm. the companies. Mm -hmm. but he's like, I know that Americans control these and that the Black situation is a direct product of this. But he said there's a, yeah, there's a part where he says, like, he says, it is true that many Jews use shamelessly the slaughter of the six million by the Third Reich as proof that they cannot be bigots or in hope that they are, or in the hope of not being held responsible for their own bigotry. It's galling to be told by a Jew whom you know to be exploiting you that he cannot possibly be doing what you know he's doing because he's a Jew. It is bitter to watch the Jewish storekeeper locking up his store for the night and going home, going with your money in his pocket to a clean neighborhood miles from you, which you will not be allowed to enter. Right. Nor can it be the relationship, nor can it help the relationship between most Negroes and most Jews when part of this money is donated to civil rights. In light of what is known as the back white backlash, this money can be looked on as conscience money merely, as money given to keep the Negro happy in his place and out of white neighborhoods. And then this is the part which I think goes to what you were saying. One does not wish in short to be told by an American Jew that his suffering is as great as the American Negro suffering. It isn't, and one knows that it isn't from the very tone in which he assures you that it is. Um, and then, no, it's 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 um it's it's so sharp and like this is the kind of thing. It's like I wonder why I bought like like just based on this Baldwin should be like canceled. Um, but yeah, he's saying um later on he says um yeah, it's a good oh yeah yeah okay okay so he says in the American context. The most ironical thing about Negro anti-Semitism is that the Negro is really condemning the Jew for having become an American white man, for mm -hmm. having become, in effect, a Christian. The Jew profits from his status in America, and he must expect Negroes to distrust him for it. The Jew does not realize that the credential he offers, the fact that he has been despised and slaughtered, does not increase the Negro's understanding, it instead increases the Negro's rage. For it is not here and not now that the Jew is being slaughtered. So it's, it's not in America that the Jew is being slaughtered. And he is never despised here as, a, as the Negro is because he is American. The Jewish travail occurred across the sea and America rescued him from the house of bondage. But America is the house of bondage for the Negro and no country can rescue him. What happens to the Negro here happens to him because he is an American. Yeah. And um, and like he, like he ends it by saying, he's like, he's like yeah, like I don't, like, I think that, like, actually hating Jewish people, like, I don't understand it, I don't think it's right, but there has to be an actual examination of this for there to be any hope for even, like, genuine dialogue between Black people and white people, between Blacks and Jews, and all that, and, um, yeah, I, I just, like, just seeing the overwhelming, like, he was, like, Kanye was dropped from Adidas, um he's been dropped from like all of these different brands and it is kind of like basically the contradiction between 
are celebrities like actually people or are they just brands basically and Kanye people like Kanye Kyrie like yeah they're voicing things that it's like if you go to any subway station in Philly or New York <laughs> you'll see you'll see like the black Israelite people yeah, yeah. And, so, and it's like and it's like like I don't know if I agree with them like yeah, it, yeah. it's a it's a belief that I don't know like I also don't know that much about it but are you going to say that all of these, like all of these people are basically, they're all anti-Semites mm -hmm. and they all basically deserve to be cut off from any kind of like any, any part of like discourse. Well, um, who, who authorized y'all right. to be the judge, jury and execution? Right. Mm -hmm. See, that's also part of the, you know, right. uh, this, this authority. Yeah. yeah. No. And, and oh, I'm sorry. I'm no, 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 no. And, and I mean, yeah, that's ultimately what Baldwin is getting at. He's like, in the current context, Jewish people act as if the Holocaust mm -hmm. is, first of all, the only thing that that is worth recognizing. Absolutely. Like the only suffering in world history, mm -hmm. which is worth which is worth recognizing. Yeah. But that this also gives them a unique moral authority, and that they can use that moral authority and wield it say even if they're exploiting black people or in Kanye's case if they're trying to manipulate the black voice that all of this is justified and none of it is actually consequential because we also suffered like that is like ultimately like the most like that is like the most like enraging thing from Baldwin's perspective and, and it also and like the thing is is that yeah like Kanye has like also, even before like this whole anti-Semitism thing, he was getting lots of flack because he was criticizing BLM. He had that like T-shirt that said "White Lives Matter" mm -hmm. on it. But and like he also, he also, I mean, yeah, also the Trump thing during the Trump presidency, and yeah, like I don't know if I agree with Kanye on many things, and also like it's clear that he does have some like mental issues because of his mom passing and all that. Mm -hmm. Also, just like being insane pressure being. Like one of the like yeah the biggest celebrities in the world you know Mary Kim Kardashian all that stuff mm -hmm. but fundamentally you know he criticized BLM for basically um, profiting off of like trauma black trauma mm -hmm. and like that is a point of view that has to be taken seriously oh, yeah and um, there's also like there was a Washington Post uh, opinion article that came out combining Kanye and Candace Owens together. Yeah. saying like oh like they don't take them seriously they're they're going against their people basically right and to me i feel like everything with kanye and Kyrie irving is also it's an interesting timing right. and like the accusations of anti-semitism because it's also in a time where it becomes so important for the black vote mm -hmm. to like mm -hmm. say something to be something mm -hmm. it's like i feel like the media and all these forces are trying to define, okay, no, don't listen to Kanye or Kyrie. They're not real Black. Like, they're, mm -hmm. this right, is right, the Black. Right. Like, Charles, Brown, right, right. whatever, basically sellouts. Mm -hmm. And Kanye, I mean, yeah, I agree with what you said, Jeremiah, where, like, Kanye, I think, sometimes often just does kind of want to be a devil's advocate, mm -hmm. but he, oh. <laughs> but I do think his, the thing is, is, like, you can tell in Kanye's questioning, he's, like, he's questioning like he's yeah. questioning the power dynamics mm -hmm. because he's also I mean his whole brand in some ways too is him being like no one should be able to control me like I'm yeah. a I want to be my own creator and that's yeah. fine or whatever but like some of what he says like he had this tweet where basically Charles like he went after Shaq 
Shaquille O'Neal, because Shaquille O'Neal went against him or something. And this is this is Kanye. Yeah, Kanye like tweeted and said, "Well, Shaquille O'Neal is in business with like this Jewish businessman." It says the problem is, is Shaquille, you don't realize that like there's never such thing as 50-50. Like they're actually controlling you. And he's tweeted. He said, "Quote: We as the creators and talent get so caught up in our vanity that we don't read or understand the fine print." Like Dave Chappelle said, we need to stop giving up control over mm -hmm. our own names and our likeness. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the thing, Kanye, Kyrie, like these sports stars, music people, they're, at the end of the day, you're all in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. someone even mapped out Kyrie, Kyrie Irving's um, team, the Met, the company that owns both the Nets and the Barclays Center is um, this Jewish businessman who came out hard against Kerry Urban mm -hmm. and basically was like, we need to apologize and donate $500,000 to the oh, ADL. Yeah. And they still suspended him. Yeah. Even he's... after he donated yeah. to the ADL, they still said it. And the ADL yeah. said, we don't want to pay. Yeah, we don't want your money yet. Yeah. That's crazy. That's so humiliating. Like, yes, it's to humiliate. Yeah. 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 And from my own experience, I just want to say, like, I have been in many meetings where it really is this, like, the Holocaust is almost used by the staff of my union as like a bargaining chip when it's convenient to be like, we need to like, they take it out when it's convenient to be like, yeah, we have the moral authority to shame these white and black workers for being upset that their pay, their pay period has been moved because of like Jewish holidays. Like they get upset, like basically these workers get upset because they feel like there's an unequal power dynamic where they don't get to have any say or that they feel like they have to constantly be controlled. It's like, and it's interesting, but for me, like what I just wanted to highlight that, like, because like, especially with the black workers, how can you pull out the Holocaust, like some sort of moral bargaining chip? When like Du Bois says, never in the history did black Americans ever use slavery, their experience as a moral bargaining chip like that. It was mm -hmm. always like, once we're free from slavery, we're coming back to free all of America. Mm -hmm. Like it's never, and that's what people get upset about, the hypocrisy of that experience. Where like, and like you said, it's like, we thought that you were gonna be our allies against systems of injustice, but instead now you're trying to control us. Like that's not fair. Um, and like, I feel, I do feel it like in my union where it's like, that's, I don't like, like, how dare you try to use this moral bargaining chip against people who are poor? Like, these are people who are poor and like every paycheck is like so important. It's not even enough. And you're trying to use it as a moral bargaining chip against people like that when it's convenient. Um, and I think that's also what like Kanye and like, these even like the sports stars who aren't saying anything like the black sports stars who who are like do silently support Kyrie but aren't saying it's like they can feel like at the end of the day they know that their paychecks are controlled like are controlled by like an industry like these industries that are do have a lot of Jewish business people that talk and like it is a question of like why do you have the authority to control what I have to say like why is that fair and why are you monitoring me? Mm -hmm. Who gave you that right to be a policeman on my speech, but I can't police what you say? No, no that, that relationship is done. 
I just wanted to say that there's a book called Forty Million Dollar Slaves. Yeah. I don't know if you read that. But mm -hmm. I remember when I was about like eight, nine, ten, like we always had it in my bathroom um, in my house because my dad, I guess, would read it in there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know. This conversation is bringing me back to that because I want to um, like actually read that book. I've only ever skimmed it and I was way too young to understand it. Um, basically, it just talks about the um, industry of sports and how they actually the NFL. Yeah, the NFL specifically. In the beginning, they do talk a little bit about, about boxing, like the history of boxers and how they beat each other to death, basically. But yeah, they take that, like the origins of competition of Black men for a sport and then financial gain of white supremacists and bringing it into like the modern world, like NFL. And you can really apply, I feel like, to the sports industry in general, because it's, it's an older book, but it's not yeah. that old. Yeah, no, 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 it's not, yeah. yeah. came out in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but I also wanted to say that I don't feel like the conversation is just about like, like anti-Semitism, like anti-Semitism, because when I talk to the workers about why they're upset, like they say my Jewish CEOs are my Jewish boss, but I don't think they mean it in the like, oh, I don't like Jews. What they're saying is they are unhappy with a certain set of values in this country mm -hmm. where you, they don't like this sort of thing where nowadays it's like constantly this feeling that people don't care about like the ones who actually are the backbone of America, like the workers, all that. They're upset at a, a certain change of values that people constantly are trying to imbibe now, which is like, we value the person who puts a, even just a few dollars of profit above a human life. Like, that's what I really hear from all these workers when they say like, my Jewish boss. Like, it's not them being anti-Semitic. It's them saying, I don't like a change, this change in values in America. What happened to a hard worker being rewarded? Why can't I retire? Like, why do I have to bust my ass for like 70 years and not get to retire and spend time with my grandkids and great grandkids. Like, I feel like it's a value thing. They're unhappy with like a change in American values that you see all over the place. Like they don't like the, that people value money more than like mm -hmm. flesh and bone. Like they don't like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would say, you know, on all these are ideological questions, of course. Um, the weaponization of music on quote unquote black black music against black people. Where's that coming from? Who promoted this? You know. Um, and it, it's it's obvious. You know, those who are responsible, who participated in this, including our quote artists. Mm -hmm but those who had the power to shut them down as they're doing with Kyrie and Kanye, why didn't you shut them down when they were calling us these bad names? Mm -hmm. You have so much power, but you don't apologize for your complicity in that. You know, so uh, it's, it's infuriating and I, you know, and it's these young men, and it's it's a sign of of a good thing happening that they do stand up, and that they are vilified, and then that compels others in their cohort, their teammates, and their people who know them 
to either stand up or be a, a asshole and don't say nothing. Mm -hmm. This is a, a good crisis. And um, it's, I, I just watch it, it makes me so angry for he didn't apologize. You know, this, uh, you know, and, and we talked about this a lot, you know, uh, the uh, emasculation or taking the masculinity away from black men and making us appear in front of our communities as nothing. And that's what they were doing, making an example of Kyrie. Mm -hmm. Oh, he, you thought he was something, now we're gonna make him into the little punk that we want him to be. I could use other language mm -hmm. called the bitchification. We make, we're gonna make you a bitch. Excuse the harsh language. And that's what it is. It's a gangster thing, a gangster move, you know? Hell of a gangster move on a cat. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know how he gets out of this. You know, how, you know, it's going to be hard because he is uh, a creation of the NBA. Mm -hmm. It's one of the greatest point guards of all time, you know? Yeah. And, you know, he has the shoe thing. And I, I got, as a matter of fact, I got a pair of Kyrie's myself. Okay. Uh, they dropped him. Like, you dropped him. They dropped him. Wow. You're dropping everybody now. Yeah. You're going to destroy people. But we don't have, but, but we're the, see, anti-Semitism, what does anti-Semitism without power mean? Mm -hmm. But you're not a racist. You can do whatever you want to us. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna destroy you. You know, but I'm woke. You know. Well, actually, they're saying Kanye's anti-black. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're saying Kanye's yeah. the racist. Yeah. Because yeah. the anti-black. He's a racist against who? Black people. Yeah, the people yeah. like um, who's like a Tony Hickey who oh, yeah. you know dropped out of the scene somehow, but he's like, back. But he had this article saying like it's like the whitening of Kanye or something. <laughs> that like everything Kanye's doing is because he's actually white. Uh, like he, yeah. he's white. See, the thing about Ty Nessie Coates is his father's supposed to have been a Black Panther and all that bullshit. Show you how much that means. Mm -hmm. But no. I, mean, I think it's all tied to the Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no question. They call Trump arrangement syndrome is if you agree with Trump, then you're racist. And if you're against him, then you're anti-racist. Right. And that's like as, yeah. as, as yeah. far as the analysis goes. There's no actual honest understanding of why this is a phenomenon. Right. It's just racism. That's it. Yeah, it's oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if you watch her, like the inner, like one of the initial press conferences that Kyrie was doing where they were starting to push yes. it. Because they were like, why did you promote this anti-Semitic documentary? And he's like, I didn't promote it. I just posted it. And it's like, and then, but then they keep trying, like pressing him. He's like, don't, you're not going to put this label on me. And I'm not, I don't accept the labels that you're trying to put on me. And I think like that is fundamentally, it's like whether it's a Trump thing, like, yeah, this whole episode, it's like, you're trying to put all these labels, not just on these celebrities, but on fundamentally on the American people too. Yeah, but and, I have a question yeah. though, because I was, um, like we were talking about how my best friend in high school, she's actually a Hebrew Israelite, she's a black Jewish person. And that was my introduction to like, I was like, what, there's black Jewish people? And I literally went with her. <laughs> I went with her one time on Saturday oh, wow. to service to see like what it was like 
and I see a lot of like Hebrew Israelites downtown and stuff as well, yeah. and they're talking. And my thing is, why? Yeah, I'm not like, but I don't understand how they're being read as anti-Semitic because they're literally saying they are Jewish. And now again, I'm not Hebrew Israelite, so I can't be in depth about it. But from what I've heard and from what I've seen, just based off my best friend and their whole like collection of people, they aren't saying that white Orthodox Jewish people aren't Jewish. They're just saying that we were the first Jews. Mm -hmm. That's what they're saying. And that's when it gets into like to Zionism yeah. to me, because it's like people, I don't think people even talk about that term at all when they talk about mm -hmm. anti-Semitism. Because I think that's really what people are reading this mm -hmm. as. It's not people are not being anti-Semitic, they're anti-Zionist mm -hmm. because there's the group mm -hmm. of Jewish people who believe that they do believe in like Israeli supremacy, like they want Judaism mm -hmm. to rule and if I was a big name right now, I'd be canceled. Cool. But <laughs> but I don't know. I just think yeah. it's interesting how we just leave out so much language and terminology. And like you're saying, everything is just dwindled down to this or that. Mm -hmm. And it just, it gives people the disadvantage because they don't even have a chance to educate themselves and to look at the whole picture because we're all just being pigeonholed. It's like, you're either good or you're bad. So watch what you say. And it's like, why aren't you giving people the recognition that these resources exist, like there's a history to this. There's Zionism, there's anti-Semitism, which falls under like Nazi Germany and all that, but that's a very specific thing. And they're taking that very specific event and just making it this umbrella over everybody who criticizes the power dynamic of elitism. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, folks, I think we should. Oh, somebody? No, no, no. I just. <laughs> I think we should conclude today. It's been uh, been very enlightening on many levels. So I'll see everybody next week. See you on election day. Oh yeah, election day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. I probably will not vote, but I have to go to Josh Shapiro's watch party. Uh, <laughs> I just have to be a purple body. Oh, dang, I'm so purple. I have to be a body in this purple t shirt. Yes, yes, represent her union. So it'll be interesting if he loses, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in the online. You'll be able to live tweeting. I'm Jewish, yeah. I know. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>